Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, podcasties? If I'm a podcaster, I guess that makes you a podcastee. Um, yeah, so this is a bonus episode. <clears throat> Here's the story. Hunter Motz came by yesterday to record a podcast. We decided we'd co-release it. He's going to release it on his podcast, which is called uh, Mixed Mental Arts. Uh, they have really interesting guests over there, some some quite high profile guests they've had on that. He was doing it with Brian Callen. I think Brian's sort of fading out. Hunter's taking it over. I'm not sure exactly what what's going on there, but uh, they're good buddies. They've been friends since birth, basically. Brian Callen's a well-known comedian, if you aren't familiar with him. Friends with Eddie Ift and uh, Joe Rogan and that whole crowd. Um, I've never met Brian but um, anyway, this is the third, I think the third time Hunter and I have uh, gotten together and recorded our conversation. He's a super smart guy, uh, very encyclopedic kind of intelligence. He remembers references. He He's very good at summarizing lines of argument. Uh, he'd be a hell of a lawyer. But luckily for us, he's uh, using his intelligence for things that are more applicable to the real world. Um, rather than just defending the rights of wealthy companies and people, he's uh, using his considerable intelligence to sort of uh, pierce the veil of sloppy thinking and inconsistencies and hypocrisies. Um, and he's uh, intellectually quite honest. Uh, he and I don't agree on everything, but when we disagree, it's always interesting. And I think it generates um, growth, certainly for me and, and hopefully for him occasionally. So uh, I really enjoy these conversations with Hunter. Anyway, he came by yesterday and we sat here and we uh, yammered at each other for a couple of hours. And I set up that new camera I have, that Mevo. And uh, so people who are Patreon supporters have already received the link to the video uh, of this conversation. So if you want to watch videos, I'm going to be taking more and more of them. Uh, certainly people who come by the house, if, if they're comfortable with it, I'll set up the camera. And once I get on the road, I'm going to be I'll have it on the dashboard. And I think jo Jake Johansson uh, wants to come with me for part of the ride. I was just talking to Duncan Trussell this morning. Looks like we're going to get together. I don't know if uh, I didn't ask him if it was cool to announce it publicly. So I'll uh, keep the specifics to myself for now. But uh, we're planning to get together this summer and do a live podcast together. And maybe I can lure him into the van and uh, whisk him away to the desert or something and, uh, you know, tie him up and force him to do 10 or 11 podcasts. And I can just dribble out over the next year. It's so hard to get that guy, pin him down. He's a wily one, that Duncan Trussell. Uh, yeah. So anyway, the video is already up at Patreon. So uh, you know that if you're a Patreon uh, contributor and I'm not distinguishing, you know, if you give 15 bucks a month, you get this. If you give 30 bucks, you get this. Um, there are those bonus, you know, send you T-shirts and signed books and whatever, you know, whatever you want, basically from my mom's garage. Uh, 
But as far as the bonus content, the videos and things like that, that's just for everybody who uh, contributes on Patreon. So even if it's a buck a month or a buck a, uh, an episode or whatever it is, um, you're you're in. So thank you to everybody. And uh, so I'm just going to throw this up uh, today, I guess. Uh, today's Tuesday. I'll throw it up as soon as I finish recording this and then I'll get back to the book. So with no further ado, this is Hunter Motts and I and me. This is Hunter Motts and me speaking yesterday. But should that be Hunter Motts and I speaking yesterday? I don't know. I taught English grammar for like 15 years and I don't fucking know. Just goes to show you. All right. I'm going to play you out with a really interesting tune. A, A friend of mine. Speaking of teaching English, I was teaching in a school in uh, Barcelona called Britannia School many, many years ago. And a guy named, I think his name was Greg, gave me a CD. Um, it's called the KLF Chill Out. And apparently this, there was this band, the KLF, who were sort of like a performance artist as much as musicians. And there was some, I remember reading something about how they... They got quite popular and then they decided they were done with music and and like as a way to call attention to what a bunch of bullshit the commercialization of music was. They actually burned a million pounds on stage. I believe that's true. Uh, I haven't Googled it. I haven't looked it up on Wikipedia, but I remember reading that years ago. So the KLF are some interesting people. Anyway, uh, this chill out tape, man, I have listened to this thing so many times over the years. It's really fascinating. The whole thing is like a train ride through America. And these guys are British. So like a lot of Europeans, they sort of romanticize America. America is a pretty romantic place. Um, but this train, uh, goes through America. And so you hear the train in the background, you hear snippets from AM radio, late night talk radio. You hear, uh, these hucksters trying to sell stuff, you know, already before midnight tonight and you get this and there's a news report and you hear guitars in the distance and dogs barking and horns honking. And it's just this whole, like, it's as if you've hopped a train in the middle of the night and you're just going through the heartland of America. America and song music comes in and goes. It's really, really beautiful. Anyway, this is track nine. It's called Wichita Lineman is a song I once heard, I think. Um, but it's really worth getting a hold of the whole thing. If you like to listen to music, for example, while you're drifting off to sleep, uh, this this thing is ideal because it, it's interesting enough that if you're listening, it's like it's got a nice groove and it's fascinating and there are all sorts of surprises, but it's also kind of quiet and lulling, I think because of the train movement. So it, for me anyway, it's really a nice thing to listen to when I'm falling asleep. All right. So this is the KLF chill out and then you will hear my conversation with Hunter Motts. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope everything's cool out there in your world.
right. Hi out there. Hey guys. How's everybody doing? And gals and zeers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> zeers is that? That's one of the one of the pronouns, one of the 70. So I just want to make sure that I'm not putting anybody in a box that they don't want to be in. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, hi, everybody. So I'm here with Hunter Motz, I think. Is this our third uh, in our ongoing conversation? I think so. I think so. Series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're co-releasing this. So if you're listening to this on my podcast, uh, I am hereby inviting you to uh, check out Hunter's podcast, where you'll hear this very same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So probably once it's on mine, I will somehow fuck up the exact same audio. <laughs> really? That would take some yeah, doing. It would take some doing, but I, I have that, that, that sort of power. Oh, we're doing shoes off? I like this. This is what I love about being with Chris Ryan. It's casual. It's, yeah. it's casual Monday. Yeah. Uh, the other uh, thing, the other announcement I wanted to make right here at the beginning is that for both of us, I think we've agreed, uh, our Patreon viewers will have access to a video component of this podcast, which is being recorded even as we speak. That's literally, true. As we, as speak. we speak, yeah. It's being recorded on this iPad, which I'm showing the Patreon uh, folks right now, and we can see what's happening. For some reason, the camera seems to like me better than Hunter so far. That's, we've established this because the camera has a built-in charisma meter. <laughs> Charismometer. <laughs> Charismometer. <laughs> Sounds very scientific. Um, was that invented by the same people that invented phrenology? <laughs> Probably. You know... I, I know I have a friend. I won't mention any names, but I have a friend who's a psychiatrist who, mm -hmm. who is sort of like, oh, see the shape of the head, see the, <laughs> no. the placement of the ears. And the, and the... <laughs> Dude, did you get the memo? That's not a That's science like, anymore. <laughs> like as of hundred yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. hundred years ago. Yeah. Well, that is the basic problem: is is that very often these ideas linger long past when the evidence has moved on. Okay. See, here we go. We're right into it yep. already. Now, is it? so outlandish to think that there would be physiological correlates of basic intelligence well not, not racial necessarily yeah. but physiological i mean can't you do you think that you can look at a photograph of someone and with you know statistically significant accuracy judge whether that's an intelligent person, an average person, or a below average person in terms of intelligence? Well, there's the old thing, right, that you can tell if somebody, you can see if somebody is intelligent by looking at their eyes, right? right. And certainly having met plenty of Scientologists, there's a certain dead quality that many of them have in the eyes, right? But what is that dead quality that you talk about when you say a human, you know, you can see that there's like something going on, right? Yeah. There's an emotional alertness as opposed yeah. to sort of being in a state of like apathy and disengagement. But I associate that more with psychological trauma than with a lack of intelligence. That's, but I think that's the point is this gets down to what is intelligence. Right. Right, and so crucially, um, there's this this uh, graph from Joseph Henrik's "The Secret of Our Success." There you go, yeah. dropping names Man. again already. Hunter Mott's. But drop these dropper. names. Tell me about tell me about these two books that you have for us. Uh, we'll we'll get to. I mean, it's all it's all really. These are just books that I'm using in the manuscript I'm working on. And uh, this morning I was doing some reading, and I thought, oh, this would be interesting to talk with Hunter about. Um, the first one 
is Hierarchy in the Forest, mm -hmm. The Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior by Christopher Bohm. Mm -hmm. I'm showing this now to the camera for those of you who are watching Which is, the by the way, it's also well posted. Now you get oh. to see what is your reading process. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Can we look at these post-its? This is the reading process for when I'm working. Yeah. You know, so. Mechanisms of Egalitarianism, Weapons. Very interesting. Anti-hierarchy. Yeah, so because the point is, is that a lot of this is trying to refute the standard narrative of red and tooth and claw, right? Right. Well, Bohm has a very interesting, a pretty nuanced argument because, mm -hmm. and I, I am down with his argument. Um, you know, like, I don't know if you remember, in Sex at Dawn, I, I sort of confronted this question, what is human nature? And I said, well... Asking that question is like asking what's the natural state of H2O. Right. It's so contextual, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so we clearly have a capacity for violence. We have a capacity for yep. cooperation. We have a capacity for competition and on and on. Uh, so it's very contextual. However, I feel that we are, because of the amount of time that we've spent in particular social systems, we're more... Um, we have predispositions toward certain things mm -hmm. and certain behavior patterns. And so when we come out of alignment with those predispositions, it results in some sort of psychological trauma, mm -hmm. PTSD being the most sort of salient example, right? Um, we crave community. We're mm -hmm. capable of being hermits. Mm -hmm. Most of us could survive some period of time in isolation without losing our shit. Um, but obviously that's not you know what we want. So. Right. It's the capacities versus tendencies, I think, yeah. is the way I, I phrase it in this book. Um, um, but what Baum argues is that humans are, like chimpanzees, bonobos, and virtually all other primates, deeply hierarchical mm -hmm. in our sort of biological predisposition. But because our survival in hunter-gatherer bands was so dependent upon cooperation and fairness that we've developed... Uh, over hundreds of thousands or millions of years, um, mechanisms for uh, avoiding that hierarchy becoming, um, getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's very interesting that people don't really talk about much, like, you know, Steven Pinker, and we'll probably be trashing those guys as we just seem to do every time <laughs> we get together. Um, you know, the, they have a big belief in the interloper, the selfish interloper theory. So, the idea being that hunter-gatherer, you know, our ancestors couldn't possibly have been egalitarian, Rousseauian love monkeys because <laughs> you'd have some selfish interloper would come along and take advantage of the situation yeah. and out-mate, out-reproduce out everybody else. And so these selfishness would be selected for. That's right. But what they're forgetting is that everybody's fucking armed in a hunter-gatherer group. Yep. And it doesn't matter how big you are. If some asshole comes along and starts telling people what to do, he gets a fucking arrow in the and back. And you can just look at how human beings behave when people are assholes. They punish the asshole. Or elect them president. Or elect them president. But crucially, uh, you know, and so it's not even that even necessarily... So yeah, so this this sort of comes back to to tie this into Joe Henrik, the name that I like to drop a lot, and I drop it because it's a good resource for anybody trying to get their way into this research. Um, is uh, you know Henrik talks about how humans actually have two dimensions of power. So there's dominance, 
but there's also prestige. Mm. And so prestige is that you can acquire power by being of service to the community. Right. And by demonstrating that you have positive social skills that are useful. Right. And that is the emotion of awe. And you want to copy people who are prestigious and you want to be like them and learn their virtues. And that's how you rise up within the hierarchy of your tribe by being more useful to the tribe. So it's an entirely different axis to power, social power, rather than dominance. So I think that's yeah. that's the first thing. And, you know, that that is fairly unique among primates. Right. Like there isn't an, an all mechanism. Well, bonobos. Bonobos have all? Yeah, bonobo. Well, bonobos, uh, the hierarchy, Franz Duval speaks about this explicitly. He says that, first of all, the female hierarchy is mm-hmm. determines the male hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So even though the males are bigger than the females, 15 right. to 20%, same as chimps and humans and, on average, uh, it's the females who basically run the show because they really stick together and the mm-hmm. males are more fragmented and can't mm-hmm. get their shit together cooperatively. <laughs> so the future is female. <laughs> if there's going to be a future, yeah, it's, it's probably going to be female. Uh, but with the beauty of female rule, and we talked about this in Sex at Dawn as well, is that female rule, rule tends to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. So it's not the mirror image of patriarchy where right. women are, you know, owning men and ordering right, right, them right, around. Right. Women, because I guess we can talk about reasoning for this, but uh, in matriarchal societies, the reason they're not recognized by anthropologists is they don't look like the inverse of patriarchy. Right. The, the men are happy. Right. Men are included in decisions. They right. just don't rule the way they do right. patriarchy. Right. Um, well, what, what were we talking about? So, so that so the, there is this uh, prestige mechanism, this all oh. mechanism. Oh, with bonobos, right? right. So, so the bonobo female hierarchy uh, is determinative of like where we're going to go feed and where you know if we're mm-hmm. going to whatever. The and the male's position in the male hierarchy is based upon his mother's position in the female hierarchy. So if your mother is a dominant mm-hmm. female, then you are de facto a dominant male, even wow. if you're like super chill and don't, you know, tell anyone what to do. Yeah, Just, yeah, yeah. So it's, and then the other thing that Duval talks about is that as opposed to chimps where, where uh, dominance is determined by aggression mm-hmm. uh, and coalition building and mm-hmm. successful backstabbing, uh, with bonobos, the you don't even want to call it dominance. The the sort of exalted state of your you know hierarchical positioning is determined by affection and respect. Wow. You know what he spent most of his life observing uh, bonobos, and he said that the the dominant females aren't aggressive. They're not mm-hmm. more aggressive. They're just everyone loves them. Mm-hmm. You know they're they're consulted. Right. So that's very much like what we see in hunter gatherer societies. Right. Now, you're talking about these mechanisms. I thought I'd read something here. This is great. This is from um, Richard Lee, who's an anthropologist who uh, was in uh, Africa in the 70s and 80s. I think he's still writing. He's often cited in, on hunter-gatherer stuff. He says, um, say a man's been hunting. He mustn't come home and announce like a braggart, hey, I just killed a big one in the bush. First, he'll come and sit down in silence until someone else comes up to the fire and says, so what did you see today? And he'll reply quietly, ah, I'm no good at hunting. I didn't see anything. Maybe just something small. Mm -hmm. And then 
and then he says, I'll smile to myself because I know he's killed something big. Yeah. You know, there's this humility. Mm -hmm. So he says, a, a proud hunter's heavy use of denial and euphemism demonstrates the degree to which the group is able to intimidate its more prominent achievers. Mm. And even after this show of modesty, other band members preemptively take pains to put down the hunter. Yep. When they go to carry in the kill, they express their disappointment boisterously. Yeah. They'll say, you mean you dragged us all the way out here to make us cart home this little pile of bones? Oh, man, if I knew it was this then I wouldn't have gotten up from the fire. Oh, this is crazy. I gave up a day in the shade. So there's all this kind of joking ridicule, which, you know, we see this in, in male societies generally, you know. It sounds like uh, boarding school. Boarding it sounds like boarding school. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like, like the pub, sounds the gym, like uh, any soccer sports teams, team. Yeah, yeah, anything. It's like, hey, yeah, yeah, you're cool, yeah, but hey, you're just. Yeah. A, you but know. let's remember, you have a tiny dick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and that's so. I think that goes really deep. Yeah, in yeah, us. yeah. And but we've spun out of control now, where you know, instead of leadership being based upon respect and admiration and just like. Hey, you're a good dude. Mm-hmm. Now, leadership is something that can be taken and wielded. Well, but it's the the problem is is that it's the mechanisms of social control, right? So, teasing, right, which is what we're talking about. Teasing works well when you know mm-hmm. it's a group of people who know each other, who feel comfortable doing that, right. who you know are able to use those mechanisms effectively. It's not scalable. Well, it is scalable. And if you look, I think if you look at the emergent behavior of the Internet, there's a lot of teasing that's going on, right? Mm. That's what a lot of this meme meme making, the nicknaming, all of that, that's the emergent culture is that global village that teases and ridicules. But is it effective? I mean, is Donald Trump going to be hounded out of office by tweets? Well, I I mean, you know, to a certain extent, right, like the community knows what he's doing, right? So it's very hard to keep secrets anymore. So very much like a global village. Um, I think that's the spirit of Donald Trump. He doesn't... (laughs) (laughs) The the, the Donald is always watching. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, but the... um, I think that increasingly, you know, there's just going to be greater and greater transparency about what every other human is going on, what is going on with every other human, and that we're increasingly going to be able to call each other out on our shit much, much better. And I think that's... That's the culture that will emerge from the Internet. You think so? Yeah. Well, interesting, because the thing is, I I can see the dynamic you're talking about. It makes sense. But the thing about the Internet is certainly social media, which is where that kind of teasing and all Mm -hmm. those mechanisms would come into play. You can just ignore it. You can just turn it off. Oh, yeah, you can. And I think that's if you look at... What's interesting, you know, sort of like having walked around this podcasting universe a little bit, Podland, and listen to how people react, they tend to say, oh, you know, you should ignore the YouTube comments or you should ignore the people on Twitter. Right. And I think that's a mistake. Um, I think the key thing is, is that there's a big difference between bullying and teasing, right? And bullying is one-sided and teasing is reciprocal. Which brings us to your thing with Sam Harris, of yep. course. Very funny, by the way. You yep. sent me that thing this morning. Yeah. I when I first looked at the photo, who's mm-hmm. it's uh, from uh, Zoolander. Zoolander. Yeah. When I first looked at the photo, I didn't realize that that wasn't uh, what's his name, the actor uh, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. Yeah. He yeah, looks yeah. so much like Ben Stiller. Yep. 
So you've inserted his uh, Sam Harris's face onto Ben Stiller and your face onto uh, Owen Wilson. Yeah, it's Hansel. I and I didn't do it. All credit goes to uh, you know Unicorn and Unikitty, uh, Nicole Lee Page and Matt Madonna, who are two people in our community oh. by those nicknames. Oh, all right, cool. Um, but so yeah, so the 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 you know we've sort of talked a little bit about you know. Dawkins and Harris, right? And we've talked about them previously on this podcast. And that there's, you know, the point of science is intellectual accountability, right? You're supposed to put your idea out there as a hypothesis that's clear and testable. It's tested against the evidence. It succeeds or it fails. It's nothing personal, mm. right? And that, you know, if your conclusions are good, then they can be verified by the community. But part of the problem is, is that within science that there are certain individuals who have this extra degree of power, either because they have a successful track record in the past or alternatively because they've become big public figures. And so what ends up happening is they're not intellectually accountable and they're able to do you know, what you were talking about with the sort of intellectual rope-a-dope, right? where they never take a punch and they're never held accountable on what do you believe, right? And so the point of all of this has been to try and restore intellectual accountability using the mechanisms of the Internet. Yeah, the problem is to play devil's advocate here. Do it. Uh, I love it. You can't respond to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I get shit sometimes from people that I never responded in any detail to the person who wrote a book length refutation of Sex at Dawn. Yeah. The reason I didn't do that is that uh, I see no evidence that that person exists. Right. The, the, their, their name is, seems to be a fake name. Yeah. There's no evidence of them. So I don't feel compelled to sit down and spend hours or days or weeks nope. of my life responding in detail to an argument made by a person who won't even say who they are. Yep. And it's not like... They have to hide behind WikiLeaks because Putin's going to shoot them. I mean, yep. you know, there's no physical danger involved in disagreeing right. with me. So that gave me a nice easy out. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Harris could say, well, I don't need to answer to you. Who the fuck are you? And I mean, fact, I get a million emails a week. I'm not Totally. Gonna, and yeah. that's the point is, is that, you know, the, the traditional thing, the traditional notions or intuitions of debate, right? That you're going to challenge the person and then you're going to meet for a face-to-face conversation. You're going to hash things out, right? And, you know, Sam was very clear on Rogan. He was like, oh, I'm not going to debate him. Who's this guy? Everybody has a Twitter account now. It's all blah, 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 blah. Right? Although just the fact that he's talking about you on Rogan says that he knows who you are. Well, he's, so, he's read some of your Well, it was pretty arguments. hilarious because the, what he said on <laughs> Rogan was he was like hunter is it mots and you know, know. It was- he's, he's very the thing about and i've never met sam harris and so i'm you know whatever but i've listened to a few of his podcasts i listened to one recently that i really enjoyed actually about it was with uh, tristan harris mm-hmm. who's a, a technology yeah, ethicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a really interesting conversation mm-hmm. um but Sam Harris is extreme. To me, he's like one of these guys in high school who hung out with the cool kids, but he knew he wasn't quite a cool kid. And so he sort of guarded his, he was very clever about guarding and protecting his access to that cool crowd and excluding other people from the cool crowd who weren't. Because if, if he let anyone else in, it might expose <laughs> that he's not really one of the cool kids. Yeah. There's this weird, like, heightened awareness of status and 
you know, if you went to Stanford or you didn't, and yep. oh, I, I'm good friends with them. But, you know, a lot of this yep. name dropping, and um, and he constantly refers to these intellectual struggles he's had that he always wins. Mm. I mean, even in that podcast, and I, and I haven't listened to a lot, so again, I may just be full of shit here. But even in that, he referred three or four times to different debates he'd had and how he like decimated the person's arguments and how he, he just seems very um he seems like a small guy who's yeah. very like uptight about it well and he's trying to he's trying- i mean small physically by the way yeah, I, I don't yeah, mean yeah. that like personality or anything he's obviously smart and he's articulate but well, he, i think he's i think you know so uh i think he's very intellectually insecure and when you're intellectually insecure, then what happens is that you try and build a persona and you try and make it seem like you're really smart. And so, okay, but why would he be intellectually insecure? He's published, what, half a dozen books. You know, that's a lot of exposure. If, yeah. You know, I mean, I can say, as, and you as well, when you're writing a book, you feel like, God, if I'm, if I'm making a fool of myself here, you're pretty naked. Yeah. And so the point he's is, put is a the, lot out there. Yeah, and that's the point. And so what, if you look at what he does, you know, I mean, the, John Haidt called him out for being very litigious, right? And that's what he does. Legally? The, he's, no, like a, like a lawyer. That's oh, how he approaches other people's okay. arguments. Um, and the point is, is that that's not really the scientific mindset. It's not experimental. Um, your, your manly beard is uh, scratching, scratching, scratching on the mic there. Is yeah. that better? That's better for now. Um, but but my my main point is is that you know I don't uh, you know we can psychoanalyze Sam all day, um, but I think the 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 interesting thing is is that you know he's now had intellectual struggles with a lot of people. He's yeah. been out there for you know ten plus years, right? And he's he keeps on saying that he's trying to have conversations with people that you know reasonable conversations about difficult topics, and then they don't go well. And then he's like, ugh, other people, right? right? And at a certain point, you have to be like, is the issue other people, Sam, or is the issue you, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny, you know, I, I often refer to this uh, quote, I, I don't even know who said it first, but, uh, you know, uh, admire those who seek the truth and fear those who claim to have found it. And that is, that is the key issue. There's and a surety. There's a surety, and that is what makes him attractive to young people mm. and to people who are lost. Yeah, good and, point. And if you look at, because I've now engaged with a lot of followers just to sort of suss out that profile of who are these people. Right. And they all have Twitter handles like at Atheist Sensei, ex-Mormon atheist, you know, atheist penguin. They're all, this is like a core thing on their identities or, you know, they've had some sort of traumatic experience. And so that's what happens. And the result is, is that, you know, and this is part of a larger thing where I called out Sam as a fundamentalist because the question is, what is fundamentalism? And there's often this idea that fundamentalism is religious, right? But having gone back and forth between the Middle East and the U.S., I think that John Hyde is right, that fundamentalist is really about that righteous mind. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the absence of doubt. That's right. You can be a capitalist fundamentalist. It yep. has nothing to do with religion, per se. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, you can believe the Cowboys are the best, best team absolutely. that has ever... Uh, it's clear. That's how, right. How can you even argue with That's it? That's right. <laughs> And so that they sort are of America's team. Well, that we know that, right? Um, but that righteousness—that's yeah. that's the real problem, I think, right now on the internet. Is is that there are people have these righteous minds about certain issues, and they get mm. defensive and they get reactionary. 
And the point is, is that whatever I said, right, something that I said clearly bothered Sam enough that he couldn't help bringing it up on Rogan. So in some sense, I got under his skin. But to me, what's exciting is this, which is that Sam Harris, for the first time in his life, has said something that is a clear, testable hypothesis, which is he, that he has said that Hunter Motz does not understand the relevant biology. Mm-hmm. He said that I didn't understand half the biology. Well, I'm Hunter Motz, and now... Is that I, how you pronounce it? That, that is how you pronounce it. And so now I can just teach the relevant biology, and then we can see whether I understand it. And if I understand the relevant biology, well, then that means that Sam Harris made a snap emotional decision about me based on limited evidence yeah. in the same way that he made a snap emotional decision about the Muslim world on very limited evidence. Well, it doesn't mean that. Well, we at least have that. to... You're, you're making a lot of leaps Well, there. then let's go through these leaps. Yeah. Okay. The fact that someone makes a, a snap emotional decision, a, a judgment in a conversation about one thing yeah. doesn't mean that well but we have to we have to look at we have to look at let's let's see so sam's conclusions about the muslim world so i've now had a couple of muslim guys on my podcast right and i i was born in saudi arabia i lived in you know a little bit in the middle east and the point is is that i don't think um and a large part of this also came out of having to had to teach uh the controversy at a creationist school right a christian school and so what I noticed is, is that when you're at those schools, the new atheists are used to stereotype scientists, mm. right? So this behavior that is playing well to the hometown crowd mm. is actually being used to alienate people from science and say these people are arrogant, they're condescending, they don't actually understand Christianity or they don't understand what it's about. Um, and so, in fact, even though he is preaching to the choir, someone like Sam is actually hurting science. Right? He's hurting science because he's discrediting. He's an ambassador for our brand. And if you're somebody who grows up in a Christian community, then now you've got this guy who doesn't seem to understand you know, the value of your culture, or the value of your belief system at all. And so if they don't understand that, then they're probably wrong about a lot of other things. Can science be hurt? The brand of science can be hurt. The brand of science. So science is a yeah. brand. Well, yeah, but it science is. itself, no, science isn't a brand. Science is a science process. Is a brand. Science is a, is a method of discovering the truth. So who it's do not you, a brand. So who do you go That's to? That's like saying walking is a brand. Well, but walking it is. Walking is a method of movement. Well, there's the method that is the core, right? So yeah. there's the scientific principle and the scientific methodology. But then there is separately, there is science as an institution, Right. Well, yeah, but that but that's not science. Those are institutions that have grown up around science and the funding of science and the, you know, the sense of authority that certain scientists accrue. And but that's not science. Well, but that's see, this is the thing is, is that that may be how Chris Ryan understands it. But there are seven and a half billion humans. Oh, fuck them. Fuck them. What do they fucking know? How Chris Ryan understands it is what <laughs> it's matters. the correct way. The Dallas Cowboys are America's team. God damn it. <laughs> No, but you see my point. I mean, you know, we can, it's like the difference between, you know, God and religion, right? Mm-hmm. You can say God is God. And, yeah. and, you know, I like the whole Jewish thing of not even trying to, you know, you can't draw, you can't define, yeah. it's just God. And that's kind of undeniable in a way because you can't get your fingers around it. But, uh, you know, religion is a bunch of bullshit generally. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the same thing. Like science is science. Science is, can it, is it testable? Is it repeatable? Have other people done it? You know, 
statistical significance, all that kind of stuff. That's science. It can't be hurt any more than water can the, be nor can broken. The, nor can the Christian principle be hurt. Love thy neighbor as thyself, the golden rule. Exactly. It's inviolable. Exactly. Right? But sometimes human beings don't live the Christian principle. Right. And so sometimes the institution that is built around that Christian principle, the church, yeah. right, is not accountable to that principle. The humans have been corrupted by power and they're not living that principle. By the way, the charismometer is really in It's on responding you. to me? It's, it's you've been, wow. You've been it's because you rubbed off on me, Chris. It's, I've picked up some of your charisma. It's, it's contagious. Sofa. It's all over the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> um, that reminds me of your cat story, by the way. <laughs> uh, great cat yeah. story. Um, yeah, do you see the poster? Is a movie poster? In oh there? no, Nine really? And a half lives because that, that that is so funny. In the other yeah, room, yeah, 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 that is that, so funny. Uh, the video of me and the cat is in a film festival. Amazing. So, yeah. Um, but so I've for about a year now, I have been uh, calling for a scientific reformation. Yeah. Um, because the institution is not responsive to the principle. So let's talk about that article I, I tweeted at you yeah. recently. Because yep. I think that gets to what we're talking about, the difference between science and the institutions. So a uh, quick summary. There's a guy named Daryl Bem, who I've known, I think I've met him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've known about his work for a long time because he's friends with Stanley Krippner, who's sort of my mentor in grad school and mm -hmm. a very close friend. Been on the podcast a lot. And Stanley's a very interesting guy because he, you and Stanley would have a great conversation. Wow, that would, that would be fun to set up. Stanley's 86, 7, something mm -hmm. like that now. Um, and he is sort of, I think he's the only person, and people from different parts of this debate have told me this. Stanley's the only person who's deeply respected by both the skeptical community mm -hmm. and the people who are investigating psi and telepathy and, and psychic healing and... All that know. stuff, yeah. So he's the guy in the middle that both sides say, well, Stanley, Stanley's a good guy. We trust right. him. We know what he's going to He's this, this linchpin. He's friends with the amazing Randy. He's friends with Kreskin. You yeah. know, all, all these people, he, both sides. Um, like he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson one mm -hmm. time back in the 70s when Amazing. all this stuff was really big and yep. Kreskin was bending spoons and Stanley Doing the whole was, thing. Yeah, and yeah. Stanley's also a stage magician, so uh -huh. like a lot of these guys, so they know how to do this. How to, yep. Um, anyway, so the, the point was, the article I think it was on Slate, and uh, the headline was, Daryl Bem proves... Uh, something like Daryl Bem proves the existence of telepathy, therefore science is broken. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, what I, I sent it to Stanley, and Stanley said, "Well, the problem with this is the the journalist begins. The journalist makes the classic mistake that scientists are trying to avoid, which is starting with a conclusion and then yeah. filling in backfilling. So the journalist started with the conclusion that these findings." cannot possibly be true. So it doesn't matter how well designed the methodology is. If mm -hmm. it arrives at this conclusion, there must be something wrong with the methodology. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion is, Daryl Bem set up these, these experiments basically without getting into a lot of detail. I'll, I'll put the link up on, uh, or just, just Google Daryl Bem, B-E-M, and science is broken, and you'll find this article. Um, but basically what he did was he, he's done this series of experiments for probably the last 20 years 
that show that people have physiological reactions to images that are flashed on a computer screen uh, nanoseconds before the image comes up. Right. So there are images of kittens and flowers and sunsets and, and then interspersed randomly, there are images of, well, there's some porn. Yeah. yeah. The ones they talked about in the article were porn, porn. but in earlier experiments, there were images like a rattlesnake striking yeah. or a snarling tiger mm -hmm. or a, a pistol pointed at the viewer. And so they're randomly in there. And what they found, they had these um, sensors on people's brains and, and body, and they found or brain uh, activity, electrical activity, surged nanoseconds before one of the disturbing images right. came up. And it's a really well-designed study. And so what it seems to suggest is somehow people are reacting to those stimuli before they could possibly have detected them physiologically right through so their eyes some sort of precognition so there's something going on with time yep. that isn't doesn't fit with our conception of time yeah now i read those experiments and i was like have those been repeated yes have they been repeated by other experimenters yes how many 20 30 fuck yeah wow but a lot of scientists read that and they go yeah, something wrong with science then. Yeah. Science is broken. Well, but, the, and crucially, this is, I mean, this is where having an understanding of history of science is important. Because if you look, for example, at what happened with physics, right, a hundred years ago, they had these nice, tidy models. They were right. like, our models are so great. And then there were all these problematic findings, like yeah. the photoelectric effect and right. double slit experiment. They were like, this is really problematic. And some people just want to like sweep that data under the rug yeah. and pretend it doesn't exist because it would mess up your models. But see, and I think we could rank sciences probably mm -hmm. in terms of their integrity mm -hmm. to the results. Yep. So physics I, and mathematics is probably at the top. Mm -hmm. Mathematics, it's like, hey, this equation is correct, and that's the result, then that's the result. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to be like, oh, whatever. Right. Physics is basically mathematics, so that's probably high up. Toward the bottom, psychology, medicine. I mean, think, who was the guy who, who argued for decades that uh, doctors not washing their hands... Oh, Ignaz Semmelweis? Or no, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ignaz Semmelweis. Yeah. yeah. So he was in, in Britain, right? Uh, no, Austria. Austria. Austria? Yeah. And, and he was arguing that the surgeons coming from surgery... Well, specifically coming from the morgue. So these, oh, the, where they're working the, on the, yeah. On so the, the, the hospital rotation was they were like rubbing their hands all over dead bodies and then going and delivering, delivering women babies. and babies. Yeah, and all these women were dying of puerperal fever, right. childbed fever, and that it you know it was all caused by that. And crucially, uh, he was like, listen, a chlorinated hand wash, you know, crashes the risk of these deaths. And he proved it. Dem he demonstrated it experimentally. That's right. And no one would listen to him. And he was hounded out. He was hounded out of medicine. He yep. died homeless and insane. Yep. And because there was no germ theory. Yep. They there wasn't the underlying framework to make sense of it. Yep. And I think that's where we are with Daryl Bem. I think that's where we are with a lot of things. Yeah. And the problem is it's not even necessarily... I don't... The Daryl Bem one I can't comment on. But with a lot of this stuff, the, the problem is just that there isn't... Um, the underlying framework or the pieces exist, right. 
but it hasn't been pieced together, hence mixed mental arts. Right. The point of that is to piece together a cohesive worldview. And it's not that, you know, I've done that, right? But I have, the, the analogy that I use is the blind man and the elephant. You know this story? Right. Yeah, yeah, Depends what part you're touching. That's right. And so the point is, is that, you know, we've now sketched out a child's drawing of the elephant that is good enough to attract enough of a crowd that people now will help refine and improve that. And the clearer and clearer that view of the elephant gets, the more people will come in and the more we can improve that view of the elephant. But it's, you know, after hundreds of years of the scientific endeavor, it's time to clarify yeah. what it is that we figured out. What's funny about that, that uh, story about the blind man and the elephant mm -hmm. is that even referring to the story, we refer to an elephant. Yeah. So we know it's an elephant. Well, that's true. We don't even know what it is, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. We're not describing right. an elephant. We're describing something we have no word for. We that's have right. no idea what it really looks like. That's right. And then, see, this gets us back to where we started with the importance of uh, a humble acceptance of doubt. Yep. Because we'll never have the, the full picture. No. And, and even when we have data points... Those data points, if there's no underlying structure, if there's no germ theory in the case mm -hmm. of Semmelweis, or our, our, or there's no relativity in, mm -hmm. in the case of physics that you were talking about, then we're always the, the data points are always going to be ahead of the theoretical construct that explains them. One hundred percent. And you know, one of the examples that Joe Henrik gives is, is he says, and I remember because I thought this was so funny. We had him. Uh, we've had him on the podcast a few times, but at some point he was like, he kept saying this thing, and it was clear that he was like trying to work out something for himself. He's like, you know, sometimes they like invent a bunch of steam engines first before you come up with a theory of how steam engines work. <laughs> yeah, you need to work on that metaphor there, Joe. <laughs> yeah, but, but he's like, but, but crucially, like that's kind of heresy in terms of what scientists tend to believe, right? Yeah. The scientists tend to believe that theory is the bee's knees, yeah. as opposed to that data appears and then you have to make sense of what data is available. But that is how science progresses. That is how science progresses. But the, the point is, is that that means that the, the progress of humanity is often that we are, you know, it is this sort of dance back and forth of like people are inventing shit without the help of science. Then science comes in, comes up with some theory to clarify the thing, which then allows us to better invent. Yeah. So we can become more intentional about the process. Right, right. So that's that's the nature of, you know, and the, there are these usually these stupid arguments that happen in the public sphere where people are like, theory is better than practice or practice is better than theory. And it's like so dumb because yeah. you need both. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the point is, is that we now... And, you know, the, the, I, th I think, you know, there are now 60 million scientific papers, mm. right, Ruff, roughly, 130 million books. And the problem is, is that the West has baked in these atomistic intuitions, right? So these intuitions towards individualism. Mm. And so if you look at the way that science is structured, the scientific establishment, yeah. it's all broken up into these tiny little departments. Yeah. And they talk about interdisciplinary work. Yeah. But the speed at which they're happening is not fast enough. So why is, you know, science not necessarily winning out on the Internet? Because it's not a cohesive worldview. It's, you know, there's talk of it being a collective endeavor, but that's not the cultural baggage of the people who are running science. And it's not being put together into a worldview that is accessible and practical enough that it can be disseminated to the public. And so yeah. that's our job. 
But part of the challenge is, okay, great, how do you then draw enough attention to it? And part of how you... I'm just going to okay. Oh, this is mic. so romantic. Isn't this nice? I'm just yeah. going to clip this right here. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, but part of how do, you, how do you draw attention to it, and to a certain extent, so this is where Henrik's work comes in, is, you know, humanity's superpower is social intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so you have to create controversy, you have to create social drama that can then draw people into the ideas. And so that was really the point of the whole Sam Harris thing, and I called out a bunch of other fundamentalists, and it was all just to create enough social drama that people would then be drawn in, and then you can break down the ideas and make them accessible. Mm. So you're not even really that concerned with whether Sam will ever agree to sit down with you? I was never concerned with whether Sam yeah. would sit down to agree with me because I didn't think that he would because his right. whole brand, he's built a whole brand around this new atheist thing. Yeah. And fundamentally for him to engage with all of the latest science, it would destroy his brand. Most of his preceding work would no longer make sense. Mm. So it's, I don't think, you know, I think that he and Dawkins have created a scientific dodo. Right. And it's not going to survive contact with right. most of this science. Right. Now, the point is, is that he has the opportunity to, you know, kill his own baby. Right. right? Which would give him a better brand. Exactly. That yeah. would be the smart, strategically smart thing to do would be to put the dodo out of its misery himself yeah. and say, look at how much integrity I have. I'm responding to this evidence. I'm going to move forward. Yeah. But I you know, is he going to do that or not? That's his call, right? I would prefer that, right? Because that would be even better social drama to drive even more attention to the ideas. Right. Um, but, you know, he does that or he doesn't. That's so his what's call. the last big thing you've been totally wrong about? Um, I mean, for me, I think the big difference is that a lot of my uh, big humiliation happened uh, offline. It was before I was, you know, sort of a presence. But they're, um, they're two big experiences, like life-changing, humiliating experiences that, that I talk about on the show, mm. but that I'll tell you now. So the first was, you know, I, um, you know, I graduated from Harvard, had a degree in biochemistry. That's humiliating. Well, that was yeah. humiliating. But then I moved out to Los Angeles and, um, you know, found myself surrounded by, and very much had that sort of rationalist idea, and then was surrounded by all these actors who were talking about emotions all the time. And I was like, what the fuck? Because I was, had these assumptions, reason is where it's at, emotions are stupid, right? Mm. And, um, you know, came to find out that, uh, you know, at some point I got so frustrated and so annoyed all these actors talking about all these emotions. I was like, this is unscientific. You guys don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And so ran off and read all the emotions research I could and then was humiliated to find out that they actually understood human nature better than I did. Mm. So that was really humiliating. And then the other thing that was really humiliating was um, 2010, uh -huh. uh, I was with, visiting my family in Libya and we were in the Sahara Desert oh. and I read uh, John Haidt's Happiness Hypothesis and came to realize the degree to which science had reinvented the wheel mm. on uh, a lot of ancient wisdom. And I sort of had internalized this myth that everything before had been worthless superstition. Mm. And then science had figured it all out and it was mm. new and science, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then came to, that was sort of the beginning of my detribalization. Right. That's an important moment. And, and that's, I think that ties into... Hmm, that's interesting. That sort of self-aggrandizement of science, yeah. saying anything that's not scientific is ridiculous bullshit, voodoo nonsense, yeah. is 
spread. That's like a stain that has spread into our entire worldview. Yep. So I picked up this book, Utopia for Realists, uh-huh. because uh, Matt Taibbi wrote a review of it in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. I really like Matt Taibbi. He, yeah. He, what was the vampire squid thing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, th- I think he's one of the smartest writers, and he's also really fun to read. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, and, and this seemed like it would be a good uh, source book, and I think it will be for a, a new section of Civilized to Death that I've decided to, um, to add to the mix, which explains the delay, folks. Mm-hmm. That and my, you know, constant laziness. Mm-hmm. Um, which is where <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for examples of of programs and ideas and individuals and communities who are taking some of the principles of this knowledge of how our ancestors lived and using that understanding of the nature of our species to redesign their lives or redesign Mm -hmm. society or, you know, implement new policies or something that are more in alignment with who we actually are. So redesigning the human zoo to be more like the San Diego zoo rather than the Calcutta zoo, right? Right. So... This book is very much about ideas for making the future better. And mm-hmm. one of the big ideas is universal basic income, which mm-hmm. I'm very interested in. Anyway, so I, I got this book the other day. Mm-hmm. I opened it this morning mm-hmm. over breakfast. Uh, and here's what I read. This is, these are the first words mm-hmm. of this book, okay? He's, the author's Dutch. His name's Rutger Bregman. Oh, it just gets better and better. I'm already excited. Yeah. I'm bathing. He says, let's start with a little history lesson. Mm-hmm. In the past, everything was worse. Mm-hmm. For roughly 99% of the world's history, 99% of humanity was poor, hungry, dirty, afraid, stupid, sick, and ugly. Mm-hmm. Yep. What the fuck? Well, but that's the that's the myth that culture. But but I mean, but that's that's the culture. That's the myth that cultures tell about other cultures, right? Well, that exactly. That's what everyone yep. thinks they're the fucking chosen uh, people. Exactly. And so do we. And, and but the, what we do is, you know, some of us located geographically still, yep. Israel or America or right. France, but we do it temporally. Yep. I call it presentism. Yep. That this is the best time to be alive. This is such a great moment. Well, and crucially, I mean, you know, the degree to which you have internalized these myths without even realizing it. So I uh, had this conversation with uh, this guy who's a Muslim and a neuroscientist and is now getting his MD, uh, Mohammed Gilan, or Gilan. Um, but he, uh, you know, as, as I talked to him, I had a conversation with him, right? And, you know, I've always sort of had an awareness that, like, oh, the Muslims, like, preserved a lot of this ancient Greek wisdom and they moved things forward and all that sort of stuff. zero? Yeah, you know. What a great invention. (laughs) You know? You can invent one thing. Invent zero? Change the world. Yeah. But also amount to nothing. I mean, that is the perfect Zen invention right there. The hero invented zero. Yeah. but so, you know, I, I, I started, like, trying to figure out. So we were talking about what is science really, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, the conclusion we sort of came to on the podcast is, is that it's a formalization of what human beings have always done. So humans change their minds in light of evidence, mm. right? So if you look at, you know, Game of Thrones is a great example, right? You know, season five ends, Jon Snow is dead, right? A lot of hypotheses emerge on the internet, right? People have theories about whether he's alive or dead or why. 
And then season six starts, right? New evidence is presented that, oh, Jon Snow is in fact alive. Spoiler alert. And uh, what, what that means. Late the, retroactive, yeah, yeah, retroactive spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. Sorry, guys. Um, uh, but, you know, the, it emerges and then, you know, people change their minds and evidence and like hypotheses are discarded. Uh-huh. So humans have always done that sort of pattern recognition in light of evidence, but often the evidence isn't clear, right? It's fuzzy or the data is too complicated. You need statistical tools to like clarify what the signal is and what the noise is. You know, People have a tendency to be intellectually dishonest, right? So we formalize this process of getting, you know, the hypothesis out there. We make it so that it has to be tested, it has to be reproducible, it has to be tested by lots of people so that we're sure that this isn't just you sort of like justifying your shitty idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but in practice, you know, I, as I looked at like the scientific method and the evolution of that, turns out, you can look at it on Wikipedia, that the scientific method may have been developed by a Muslim, this guy Ibn Haytham, who I'd never heard of. And I realized that part of that is just the myths that we've heard about the West. And you think about it, we hear so much about the Greeks, right? And, you know, we can all name Socrates, you know, Aristotle, Plato, and we hear so much about the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And then there's this big missing gap where we're just sort of like, oh, the Dark Ages, not much happened. Well, maybe not much happened in Europe, but there was a whole lot happening in the Middle East. And so I realized that what I'd internalized is the underpants gnome view of uh, intellectual progress. So, you know, the underpants gnomes from South Park? Mm. It's great. It's one of my favorite episodes of all time. So the uh, Cartman and Kyle and Stan, they <laughs> keep having their underpants or Tweak's underpants keep gets, getting stolen. Mm. So it's like the left sock thing, where do all the left mm. socks go? And so the boys decide to do a stakeout, right. right, and see who is taking the underpants. Turns out there are these gnomes that come out at night and steal the underpants. And so they're like, why are you doing this? Why would you possibly steal the underpants? And so the gnomes like whips out like a business presentation and says, very simple. Step one, collect underpants. Step two, and there's a giant question mark. Step three, profit. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the Western view of intellectual history. Mm. It's like, step one, Greeks. Step two, Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Step three, science, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the view of history that I had. And I had mm. internalized that myth without even realizing that there was a big hole in my mental game where I didn't understand what this middle process was. And, you know, I have to like learn about that. But what it just all goes to validate this idea that, you know, Henrik talks about in The Secret of Our Success, which is that, you know, uh, the famous Newton line of if I have seen further, it's because I've seen it stood on the shoulders of giants. Not true at all. He says it's hobbits all the way down. It's these tiny, tiny little contributions that build up over time, and that's accumulated cultural evolution that happens because we have this prestige mechanism where we keep on copying from the people around each other better and better techniques and tools, and over time, you develop a really, really powerful cultural evolutionary toolkit. Okay, cultural evolution, uh, you and I were talking before we turned on the mics, uh, there's that sticker on the fridge over there that says the, mm-hmm. the what is it, the arc? The, the, uh, I, the long arc of history tends towards moral justice. Right, it bends toward justice, the arc yep. of history. Uh, is long, but it bends toward justice. And you said you, you believe that to be true. Yep. 
So, in a sense, at least on a cultural level, I guess, you would argue that evolution is progress. Because, hmm. you know, that's discredited to a lot of people. It is. Yeah. But a lot of people haven't been, aren't mixed mental artists, and they maybe haven't been exposed to uh, a broad reading of the science. Or conversely, yeah. maybe that sense that cultural evolution moves toward improvement mm -hmm. is tied into the very uh, bias that we're talking about toward presentism. Maybe, I think... Because you essentially would argue that today is better than any time in the past. If, I think in some ways... If cultural in, evolution is progress. In, well, I think, I think you know, there's, there's two things, right? So if we talk about pre-agriculture, hunter-gatherers, mm. right? So that's our hardware works well at a size of 150, right? And those mechanisms work well. So yeah, I... You it, just slithered right out of my trap. I did. <laughs> So I don't, because I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's a straight line up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, I think it's been, a, 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 you know, after agriculture, a huge drop. Yep. And then a staggering, slow advance back up to the point now where we're approaching where we were, mm -hmm. depending on the metric, mm -hmm. women's rights. Yep. Longevity. Mm -hmm. Brain size, we're still way behind. Yeah. Uh, overall health, way behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in several important metrics were way behind. And, and also, we're talking about you and me, you know, privileged people with access to medical care and nutrition mm -hmm. and all that. We're not talking about most of the people on the planet. No, but I think that we've reached an important moment in history. What's that? I think we've reached the IQ revolution. Okay, tell me. So, the, you know, if you think about uh, cultural, you know, there's an evolution. Do of you know your IQ, by the way? No, I haven't had a test in a long time. Should we? Should we whip out an IQ test? Should we do it right <laughs> whip now? It <laughs> <laughs> whip it out. I, 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 Get out of Stanford, Binet. Do I you? had a weird thing with IQ. Yeah. I had a weird kind of relationship with it because uh, when I was in, uh, what was it, sixth grade maybe? Mm -hmm. Sixth grade, I guess. Um, is that 14? Something like that? Sounds plausible. Um, a grad student came to the school where I was and was sitting in the back of the class observing whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he came, talked to my teacher, talked to me, came to my house, talked to my parents, and said he wanted to do this study of me mm -hmm. for his master's or PhD or whatever. I don't know. And that guy followed me around for a month. In school, every class, lunch, sat at the table. Uh, when I was playing with my friends, mm -hmm. playing hide-and-go-seek and, you know, cowboys and Indians and whatever shit. And then he wrote this big, long um, paper about me. And my parents, being the cool, transparent people they are, said, well, of course, you can read this. It's about you. It's really, you know, interesting. And, and, and they were really proud. So I was 14, uh, probably going, you know, maybe 15 by then, and that's when we moved from Western Pennsylvania to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real big disruption for me and scary and losing all your friends. And I was moving from a place where I was clearly like the smartest kid in school to a place where I wasn't. Fairfield, Connecticut, there are a lot of smart kids. 
and uh, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Not so much. Not so much. Um, and so it was, you know, in terms of ego, it was a difficult moment. And so I read this thing, and there was my IQ and my percentiles mm-hmm. and my verbal and my mathematical and like all these numbers that I sort of wrapped myself in mm-hmm. to protect my fragile little ego that mm-hmm. was, you know, and for a long time I was hung up on it. Yep. So I, so when we talk about IQ, I'm, I'm very, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's, it's like, uh, you can, it's, it's, a, it's emotionally troublesome, I think, because you're quantifying something that is essentially unquantifiable, maybe you'll disagree, uh, that changes over time, changes in context, mm-hmm. is reflected in many different ways in a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get, uh, as I did, you can get uh, trapped in it. Yes, you can. Yeah, anyway, so that was a long well, no, aside. No, no, Sorry, no, no, I think you. that's a super important aside. So do you know the history of the IQ test? I remember reading, it, it wasn't meant as an intelligence measure. It, was, it wasn't me- meant as a measure of fixed potential. Right. So it was originally developed by Alfred Binet, who was right. French, and it was designed to test what children's strengths and weaknesses were in different areas mm. so that you could then come in and provide targeted support. Uh-huh. And it was then hijacked by the eugenics movement. Ah, uh, look at that. And specifically, it was hijacked by Lewis Terman at Stanford. And back in 1909, Alfred Binet said that there are certain modern philosophers, right, this is 100 years ago, uh, who have, you know, said that this is a measure of fixed potential and that they, they must react against this brutal pessimism and to prove that it is without foundation. Wow. Well, 100 years later, we have that evidence. But the idea that, you know, your IQ score measures what you're capable of becoming has become an idea that has become entrenched in our culture. Mm. And Carol Dweck has spent the last, Carol Dweck at Stanford has spent the last 40 years trying to popularize uh, the science that shows, you know, growth mindset. And Mm. she talks about the age of IQ right, as this very sad period in educational history um, where so many people came to believe that they had this fixed potential. And crucially, Terman did this experiment where he got a group of kids and he IQ tested them and then decided that, um, you know, he was going to use an IQ test to figure out who were the special ones and who would do well and who wouldn't. And then, you know, he thought that would predict their futures and did a terrible job. In the group of kids that he rejected, there were two Supreme Court justices. And if you read Dweck's book, you come to realize that the problem is exactly the problem that young Chris Ryan had, which is is that you start to think that you're a special person Mm. and you become very defensive and protective and unwilling to fail and unwilling to learn. And so... Mm. This is a real problem. And the science that I most care about popularizing, the reason why I wrote The Straight A Conspiracy, is to try and get that message out there. Um, but, you know, diffusing that sort of understanding is difficult. And it's yeah. especially difficult when people like Sam Harris have on Charles Murray talking about the bell curve. Right. And crucially, if you want to displace Charles Murray's ideas, you actually have to move a lot of science. 
So that's actually what we're doing on Mixed Mental Arts this week, is, is that along with Kate Fogarty um, and you know, Unicorn and Unikitty doing some of the visuals, um, we are breaking down the science of IQ to give people an understanding that A, it was hijacked by the eugenics movement, it was never meant to be a measure of fixed potential, that uh, race is not a biologically useful concept, um, because it tells you it's not very predictive of sort of more genetic traits than just skin color, right? And he, you know, Henrik gives the example of if you take a person from West Africa and a person from New Guinea, they're both black, right, mm -hmm. in terms of skin color, but for, they're from opposite ends of the human family tree. Right. Um, There's more genetic variation among Africans than yeah. the rest of the world. That's right. Yeah. So it's a, it's not so a, an Ethiopian and a fucking Kenyan, Angolan or something. Angolan, yeah, totally yeah, yeah, different. Yeah. So it's not a useful concept, yeah. right? So, um, and then on top of that, you know, the the big thing is is that there's this thing called the Flynn effect, which Murray actually helped name, which is that IQ scores keep going up over time across cultures, and. In The Secret of Our Success, Henrik points out that if you gave someone an IQ test from 1815 and you gave them a modern IQ test, an average American, they would score 70. They would be borderline retarded. So IQ has gone up 30 points in the last 200 years. Okay, wait a minute. Say that again. If you gave them an IQ test from 1870... So if you took somebody from 1815 uh -huh. and you gave them a modern IQ test then a person from 1815 using a modern IQ test would score 70. Now, is that because there are concepts in the tests that that person would have been unfamiliar with? Well, so what happens is, is that, you know, this is the, the process of cultural accumulation. So, for example, let's look at the number system. You talked about zero, right? So, you know, base 10 counting is an incredibly powerful count powerful county system, right? can do a lot of things. It's very versatile. If you look at most hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, they don't have that base 10 system. They very often only have like, you know, they count on to 10 on their fingers or, you know, some of them count to, some tribes in New Guinea count to 78 and they sort of work around their fingers, their knees, their elbows, and they do a couple of loops around. Um, but as soon as they have contact with the base 10 system, they adopt it. Because it's a more powerful system. Not necessarily. Well, maybe not necessarily, but right. some of them do, uh -huh. at least in Henrik's book. I'm not going to challenge you on hunter-gatherers and what <laughs> hunter-gatherers do, because you're the king of that. Uh, um, the king of the hunter-gatherers. Uh, except the point of being the king of the hunter-gatherers <laughs> is there is no king. There's no king, exactly. <laughs> um, i an arrow in my back. <laughs> But so you you the the you know why look at the evolution of base ten counting and you find out that it's the result of this giant Eurasian hive mind right so zero was invented in I think either the Middle East or India right you know you have other parts of the number system are invented elsewhere and these ideas are passed back and forth across the Eurasian landmass right. and you keep on accumulating a more and more powerful toolkit. And so we have the benefit of standing at the end of that long, long process of cultural accumulation. And so, you know, now children learn their numbers, they learn their colors, they learn all these things at a younger and younger age because we're bathed right. in much more culture. But aren't we, aren't we unavoidably testing for things that we recognize as being valuable in our culture? And therefore, it's... It's nonsense to talk about someone from 100 years ago taking a test from today, just as 
you know, we say, oh, this undergather, you know, you plop him down in New York, you wouldn't know how to use the metro, he's stupid. Well, sure, pluck you down and plop you down in the Amazon and you're dead. So, so I think there's, there's the difference between, you know, the human ability to upload a culture, mm-hmm. right, is universal. Right. Right. So, you know, and yes, the IQ test is designed around measuring things that we find valuable, right, right in our environment, right? My IQ, uh, you know, the example I give also is like, you know, you, you, can, you can go to the Amazon where I will die and essentially my IQ is zero, right, or very, very low, right? But you can also just put me in a boxing class, Right. Mm -hmm. Where I'm not able to make intelligent choices. Right. I, you know, bob when I should weave. I, you know, jab when I should hook. Right. I don't I'm not comfortable in that environment. And so I don't make good choices. And this gets down to what is intelligence, which is a super basic question. And intelligence, I think the, the Romans nailed it. Right. So the word intelligence comes from the Roman root interlegere to choose between. It's the wisdom to know the difference. So do you bob when you should bob? Do you duck when you should duck? Do you weave when you should weave, right? Can you tell the difference between right. the fruit that is edible and the fruit that is poisonous, mm. right? So I don't have that intelligence in an Amazonian context. So the point is, is that the, you know, and as you're saying, yes, in, intelligence definitely depends on environment and whether you have the cultural toolkit that is adapted to that environment. And that cultural toolkit can become more refined, I think we're, we're seeing now in sort of cutting edge evolutionary research, can become more refined um, through epigenetic activation. And uh, who is the, there's Dar- Darwinian selection and then there's, um, you know, giraffes' necks get longer because oh, Lamarck, reaching. yeah, Lamarcky, and Lamarck is having a resurgence yeah. now, <laughs> where where scientists are seeing that actually, by using certain capacities, it does, in some cases at least, it it seems that it does endow offspring with increased capacity for those same capacities. Yep. And I mean, I crucially, said capacity too many times. There. You can never say it too many. <laughs> Your capacity for capacity uh, is truly limitless. Capacity squared. <laughs> it's, it's an order of magnitude. Um, Anytime someone uses the phrase order of magnitude, I want to slap them. Really? Yeah. Do you ever find that people who are a little bit kinky just say order of magnitude around you in the hopes just of getting the, a slap? Just the, okay. <laughs> I've got my paddle in my head. Don't you order of magnitude. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's the point of multi-level selection is that evolution is happening at every level, yeah, right? It's yeah. happening at a genetic level, an epigenetic level, uh, cultural level, right. and then there's culture gene coevolution. Right. So you know, the point is, is that does everybody have lactose t- persistence? Yeah. No, not everybody does. Right. Oh, guess what? It's the people who you know were raising cattle and whatever. Right, right. But you know, Dawkins and Harris deny this, and why do they deny this? Do they deny this because the evidence is unclear. I mean, that's the point. I think that if you, you know, go out and read, you know, the work of someone like Joe Henrik, that the evidence is pretty clear, but they have become sort of tribally or ideologically entrenched or alternatively, and this is the exciting thing is of this whole Sam Harris thing, is, is that it's clear that Sam hasn't even read the book. 
because he had Charles Murray on and they talked about the Flynn effect and they couldn't explain why the Flynn effect was happening. And if you read Joe Henrik's The Secret of Our Success, which was one of the books that I was holding up as like evidence, it's very clear why the Flynn effect has been happening. So it's mm. clear that Sammy didn't do his homework mm. and that he just sort of blindly emotionally reacted against what he saw as a perceived threat to his social status, which is what humans do. Right, we all do it. We all do it and yeah. it's totally understandable, but in the end the point is is that what I care about is science and I care about, you know, sort of the movement forward of the scientific project and you have to get that evidence out into the public eye so the public can read it, decide right. for themselves. Right. And really what I want is to move science away from something that is sequestered in the ivory tower to something that everybody engages with and is trying to understand and make sense of in discussing these ideas and figuring out how do they practically apply to your lives. And they, and they do. Okay, so that, that brings us to an interesting question yeah. uh, in terms of how these things practically apply to our lives. It seems that we're in agreement that uh, progress in terms of things getting better. I don't know that we really got to the bottom of whether the, the arc of the moral universe... Oh, well, I think we can get to that now. Right. We can get to that right, right let's, now. Let's get to that now, and then we'll, then we'll get back to what I was thinking about. So, so let's think about uh, this, this transition from hunter-gatherer, mm -hmm. right, where it's within our Dunbar number, right? We all know everybody in the village, and we're yeah. pretty good at policing defectors. We're right. good at people, you know, Joe Rogan called this person Ung, right? So there's this guy, Ung. We all go out and collect guavas, and then Ung eats all the fucking guavas and, you know, doesn't pull his way, right? But we're good at 150 people at spotting Ung and being like, Ung, you're a fucking shithead. Yeah. Do your do your do your part. Ung doesn't get laid. Ung doesn't get laid. Exactly, because Ung doesn't have prestige. Yeah. So it's actually in Ung's interest to um to contribute to the group and to acquire prestige and acquire social power by being more useful to the group than anybody else. Right. Right. So the, that's at 150. But then there's this traumatic event, I think you would agree, that is the invention of agriculture, mm. where suddenly you get, start to get these large-scale societies. And we don't have the cultural toolkit to be able to make sense of an environment in which there are 100,000, a million people in a city. Right. And so what ends up happening is, is that these easy mechanisms of control around dominance develop. And crucially, in all these civilizations, a god is created. So a figure of such awe and such power that is the pharaoh right. or an actual god right. or some sort of iconic figure that just generates blind obedience. Right. With restricted access. With restricted access is the key thing. Nobody yeah. gets to go behind the curtain and see that there is no wizard. Right. Because if you did, then you would shatter the illusion. So what happens then, though, is, is that, you know, you start to get societies that are better and better. You know, you've now created a problem, which is that the pharaoh, the emperor is unaccountable. And that fucks with human psychology. So you become, and we know now from Dacker Keltner at UC Berkeley, that you become more impulsive and less empathetic. That's right. what that much power does to human psychology. I love his, his research. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the research where he, he gets two people, random people from the campus, sets them down at a Monopoly board. One of them gets two dice. Mm -hmm. uh, one gets one die. Mm -hmm. One starts with $500. One starts with $100. Mm -hmm. One starts with a hotel already on Boardwalk or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they play. Yep. Of course, the rich one wins. Yep. 
He knows it was a flip of a coin, mm-hmm. and then they interview them about the game, and the guy who won will talk about his fucking strategy <laughs> and how smart he is and how he knew yeah. if he did this, then that would work out well. It's unbelievable how we we backfill our story yeah. to justify our success. Of course, when it's pure fucking luck. Well, but or this, a setup. But this is the you know the old because my dad was a city banker, right? And that's the oldest thing in the world. This is that you know when the the market when I win at the market, I'm a genius, and when I lose, it's you know market bad forces bad yeah, luck, yeah. you know some sort of externalized thing. Yeah. So that's that's the stories. Or the other one that I love about the my my favorite if we're playing the game what's your favorite dagger keltner research oh man yeah. no wonder we're not invited to more cocktail parties well i don't know i'd like to do a cocktail party with yumi and dagger keltner i think oh, it'd be fun yeah dagger's great i've had dagger on the podcast yeah. multiple times you know i wrote a long time ago i i actually sent him an email yeah. but he never got back to me but this oh i'll like put you guys in touch years ago i'll put you guys in touch because yeah. he's amazing I'd i love to, him i'd love to talk to um him, yeah. and we started doing one of the fun things we started doing is we started pairing him well i mean not just him but we started pairing up scientists mm. to try and encourage exactly that kind of interdisciplinary research mm. and we did an amazing one with dacker keltner and darren asimoglu of why nations fail mm. just to understand you know from the level of personal psychology to the societal right. level how does it it's great just like such a fun conversation i interrupted your yeah. train of thought though where were you going well i was going to say with the well let me just give my favorite dacker keltner oh, yeah, study yeah. so it was the one with the uh luxury cars oh who stops and who yeah, doesn't, doesn't. when yeah, an yeah, old yeah. lady's waiting across yep. the street <laughs> yep. at the stop sign yep. if you're in a bmw or a mercedes you blast through yeah. yeah so more impulsive less empathetic so Crucially, you know, that's the experience of the pharaohs and the emperors. Speaking of empathy, did you yeah. see this research that just was published a few days ago? Uh-uh. Showing that people who take ibuprofen uh-huh. are less empathetic. Really? Yeah. But Tylenol people are... Really? Yeah, uh, well, or maybe I got it mixed up. Maybe it's ibuprofen or acetaminophen. I forget. Whatever it is, yeah. It's, the, it's the, one of the non-aspirin painkillers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they they did this test where they you know they had the control group taking placebo and then they had mm-hmm. the other group taking the the painkiller and they were asked to judge how much someone was suffering in a photograph and there was a backstory they just had a bike accident or they were yep. getting surgery and the ones who had taken the painkiller rated the suffering of the other one lower so they were less empathetic to other people suffering when they had taken this painkiller. Really interesting finding, no? That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it blocks, it seems to be, it's like blocking pain, pain on a conceptual, conceptual level. level. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, real, real interesting. Um, which, I mean, compare that to marijuana, yeah, yeah, which yeah. some people use for pain control, but it doesn't hurt less. It just yeah. helps you sort of frame it in a way yeah, that yeah, isn't yeah. as disturbing. Yeah. So I wonder what that does to their sense of empathy, you know? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you get... Dasher, can I, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, okay, yeah. we covered that. So, so you ne- then what happens is that you start to evolve mechanisms for holding these, you know, dictators, essentially, oh, which is right, what pharaohs right. and emperors are accountable. Right. So you get rule of law, you get the glorious revolution, you get these key... That took a long time. Long-ass time. And also... Interestingly, uh, the best example of it, most people would say, is the United States. Mm-hmm. The you know the well, tri- the, the rule of law comes before the United Magna Carta States. And yeah, all that. Yeah, 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 but the the divided government, the, the you know the sort of balance balance of powers and all that. 
But you know the, the origins of that. It was from Rome. Well, yeah, I guess there was a Senate in Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and originally you have to distinguish between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. Right. And so right. they used to have pretty good mechanisms of accountability. And part of the reason why Rome goes off the rails is because those mechanisms of accountability, those branches become less and less important. Yeah. And you essentially end up with an executive <clears throat> yeah. that, you know, is unaccountable to the other branches of government. And there was a Mitch McConnell figure, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. That guy. Well, it, these these archetypes and these patterns repeat again and again. Yeah. But the key is, is that, you know, it's about mechanisms of accountability. And mechanisms of accountability at the level of Ung and a tribe of 150 are easy. That's easy for our brain. When you get to the level of a society, and you know, that's the point. It's not just that you have to figure out those mechanisms of accountability at the level of the United States. We're now having to figure out mechanisms of accountability at a global level, right? Technology has brought that. And we're failing. And and let, we are failing. We it. are failing. So that brings me back to where what I was going to say a few minutes ago when you were talking about your allegiance to science and yep. trying to find what are the practical applications of these scientific yep. findings and da 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 and I wanted to sort of challenge you a little bit uh, on, in the sense that are you convinced that mm-hmm. science has or will improve human life? I think it can, but I think can. it can. But the, the key thing is, is that you have to understand. So if we want to, we can do it because we can help people become more intelligent. We can help people more intelligent. We can help people raise their IQs faster than at any time in history before. But aren't you using IQ in the very sense that? Well, in terms of making decisions, right? So let me give you an okay. example, a practical, tangible example, right? Right. So there's this idea, Descartes' error, yeah. right? And you know, some people believe that reason and emotion are separate, right? And yeah. the point of the work of people like. John Haidt and Antonio Damasio mm-hmm. and uh, you know Daniel Kahneman is, is that thinking and feeling are always linked. Always linked. I don't know. I mean, my understanding of their research is that we make decisions emotionally and then we use the thinking to justify them later. That's right. But there's always some sort of emotion that's driving our thinking. Right. Right. And then we can reflect and change the emotion in light of the evidence. Right change the emotion in light of the evidence Mm -hmm. change the feeling in response to the facts i'm not sure Uh, if that's true it's true in a limited sense well so let me give you an example from my own work with students okay i know intellectually there's nothing wrong with eating dog yeah but it would be almost impossible for me to eat because how you feel about dogs yeah that's what i'm saying my feeling isn't changing based upon my knowledge well, no, but you I mean, choose people not... get to me all the time and they're like, hey, I read Sex at Dawn, great book, but my wife's not fucking anyone else. Like, yeah. Okay. But, uh, fair but, enough. But you don't have to change it. You can change it. And well, I don't think you can. I think it's really let, hard. Let me ask you... Because I think they're, they're disconnected, those if things. You were, if you were starving to death... Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing to eat, for some reason, this is an environment where there's no food except for a lot of dog. I met a couple who were in that situation. They were hiking in the Himalayas in India with their border collie. Yeah. And a sudden snowstorm kicked up. They got caught in a cave. They were there four days. They were starving. (laughs) And the guy told me the story and his wife was there and he was like, I couldn't. And I was like, I know where this story's going. He's like, dude, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And we looked at her and she's like, I killed it. Yeah. She killed She's Indian. She's yeah. hardcore. 
Captain Dan and Shaku. Um, but so that's, okay, but see, but that's not intellectual. That's not that my thinking is saying, oh well, you know, justify, justify. That's I'm fucking starving. The feeling itself has changed, changed exactly, right? But or you know, or for example, you know, you. So let me give you a, an example, right? Do, do you ever have? Yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm sorry to keep interrupting. No, you, it's okay. You, uh, I, I'm thinking of an example of this. Like I'm, I'm essentially agnostic, probably. Mm-hmm. But I imagine if if the shit hit the fan suddenly and and deeply, I might pray. Right. Like, do, do I pray? Is that the question? Have you ever been in a situation like a car accident, or right. you hear like someone close to you is dying or something? Do you turn? Do you like? Oh, please! Like, do you find yourself appealing to something that intellectually, you know, isn't there? Uh, I, I think, I think of pretty much everything as a tool. That's how I think of everything. So I don't have a problem with praying if it's a useful tool, right? So let me give you, so I had a, a, this is a conversation you'll love. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I had a conversation last week with a guy, with a Maori guy, right? And he said, you know, we think of, you know, we, we worship the mountains or we worship the rivers and we call them like characters right so they're they have names right mm-hmm. and we think that they have spirits and he's like that's not woo woo and mystical it's just that when you personify mountains and lakes and rivers they become people to you and because you feel that they are people you take care of them mm. so it's actually just environmentalism and stewardship and all that mm-hmm. it's a very practical tool and you know shintoism has the same thing mm-hmm. and so these pro social a lot of these these religious things have pro social benefits mm. so it's a tool so the point is is that you know i have no problem you know but a lot of it is is you know do you remember that that's a fiction that you've created or do you forget that that's a fiction you've created and start to you know be terrified of the mountain right which maybe it's if the fear is oh i'm terrified of the mountain because i know that if i go up there i may get killed maybe it's still useful or maybe right? it's a volcano or maybe it's a volcano yeah. and you don't want to be joe you don't want to fall into the volcano or get thrown into the volcano we're not um, talking about Joe Rogan, by the way. No, we're talking about the amazing Tom the Hanks movie. Oh, yeah. the <laughs> There's Tom a Tom Hanks, Hanks, Joe versus the Volcano. Yeah. yeah, yeah which yeah. I don't actually remember very well. I so. don't either. Uh, one of Tom Hanks's more forgettable films, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but so in the same way, like, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with praying, right? If, if you're using it as a form of coping. Right. Yeah. If it if it if it gives if it helps you get you through there in the same way that I, I was trying to get at whether there's an emotional trigger that yeah. that supersedes intellect because I'm feeling if I understand your argument you're saying that they're always linked the uh, feeling and thinking are always linked and of course they are they're you know they're everything's linked within us but. I feel like but I don't think everybody thinks that way. Thinking, I think in general, yeah, that's the point of Heights' work, right? Yeah. The rational dog and its emotional tail, or whatever. Fast and slow emotional thinking, dog right? and the rational tail, yeah. yeah, yeah. So in general, most of this <laughs> is driven by feeling, but yeah. you do have the ability to think slow. You have the ability to reflect, right? And when you reflect, right. you have the ability to change your feelings. And that's and, what we're saying about doubt—the humility that's right. of doubt. That's right. To be like, this feels right, but is it? Do you know the expression "to fly by the seat of your pants"? Yes, I do. Do you know where it comes from? Like no, that, I do not. It's cool. I was with my uncle flying. Uh, he's a pilot. And uh, we were talking about um, trusting your instruments. Mm-hmm. 
And he explained flying by the seat of your pants is when you're you're flying and you get into a bank of clouds. Mm-hmm. And there, the air is moving in ways that can mimic gravity. Mm. So if you get caught in like an air current, mm-hmm. your sense of up and down shifts because you're moving in a certain way and you compensate in the airplane. Mm. So now your sense of down isn't pointing toward Earth directly. It's at an angle because it's compensating for the wind. So that's why it's so important that you trust your instruments even when your bodily sensation is telling you something different. If you fly by the seat of your pants, meaning how much pressure you're feeling on your ass against the chair. That's amazing. That's how you do a Kennedy and you fly right into the fucking ocean. That's amazing. Yeah. So flying by the seat of your... I always thought it meant like going quickly or or, or carelessly. But no, it's ignoring... Instrumentation, empirical data. Empirical data. That's right. In favor of what feels right. That's right. Yeah. And so that's the point is, is that, you know, why I think the more basic question is why do we have science? And we have science because essentially our emotional intuitions, our experiential sense is often, you know, often we are flying by the seat of our pants and that is unreliable. So is science a superior way of experiencing the universe? No, I think science is just a way of breaking your beliefs faster. But does that lead you to a better... See, I I think one of the tensions in in my work is is I'm I'm always aware, uh, I'm trying to be aware of, okay, what is better for human beings as organisms Mm -hmm. versus what is better for human beings as a hive Mm -hmm. versus what is better for whatever this emergent uh, intelligence in uh, which I don't like to use that word because it presupposes uh, a positive quality to it. But this emergent entity mm-hmm. that we're embedded within, which I think mm-hmm. is very tied up with science and technology, whose agenda appears to be in, in indifferent at best mm-hmm. to our agendas as individuals. You see what I'm saying? So, for example, what's happening right now in the world, we've got the robotics revolution, we've mm-hmm. got the AI revolution, we've mm-hmm. got, you know, technology. Genetics. All this I look at those things and everyone's saying, look at that, advancements of science. It's so amazing. It's so wonderful. Or, you know, sending rockets off to Mars and colonizing Mars. I look at those things and I say, none of those things are good for us. None of those things are making my life better or your life better. And of course, (coughs) oh, well, we have titanium knee replacements. and we. But all those things, if you look at them, they're all patches on something that's fucked up by the industrial world. So it's like, oh, we're making progress in fighting cancer. What causes cancer? Mm -hmm. What causes cancer is this industrial shit that you're pumping into the atmosphere that we're all breathing and drinking and eating that mutates our fucking cells and causes this runaway cancer. I think it's all a fucking scam. And so I keep stepping back and saying, how is this better for us? Well, I think it's just it's that we've developed unevenly, right? So Joe Rogan, not Joe versus the volcano. Yeah. Um, you Joe know, Rogan would kick that volcano's <laughs> ass. That is probably true. Um, but <laughs> you know, Joe talked about how you know the internet is in its adolescence, right? 
And I think that's very much what's happened. You know, the the analogy that I always use is dueling, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, dueling was a thing that existed for a long time. People fought to first blood and then guns show up. And then, you know, suddenly there's this bloodbath. Because suddenly fighting to first blood is a whole different thing. Right. So in the same way, our technology has raced ahead of our understanding, right? And, you know, everybody has a microphone now. And everybody can now say whatever they're thinking. But most people have never really had to, uh, you know, have this level of self-awareness. They've never had to, you know, engage in sort of epistemology. How do I know what I know? Right. Do I really know? But the premise there is that the Internet will grow up. It will mature. I think it humanity will... will grow up. Well, okay, let me push back on that because... What you're saying is that humanity has to catch up with technology. Einstein famously said after the atom was split, like everything's changed except the way we think, right? I think the nature of technology, as you've described it, being this uh, enterprise that is fed by the fragmented intelligences of many people and many cultures and all that, so you get this thing, this result of all that input is by its nature always going to be out of the control of the organisms that Mm -hmm. created it. Why? Because it's operating at a higher level because it's the result of all this collaborative, cumulative intelligence. Mm -hmm. So the anthill will never be comprehensible to any ant. Well, I think that's definitely true. I think the point is is that this global society is now far too complex for any individual to understand. And technology is too complex for any individual to understand. Yeah. Neither you nor I know how this iPad right in front of us works. That is correct. And we never will. We never could. And there's probably no individual human being on the planet who understands every element of this thing that we use all the time. That is correct. So therefore, technology is always beyond the grasp of any of us, and certainly of the vast majority of us. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I'm saying is there will always be this lag between the technology and the individual. So if the idea is, well, the internet, we're going to mature and then we'll know how to use it perfectly... Maybe. Well, I'm not but saying when that we do, there will be other technology that's way beyond us. There may always be a gap, but look at, for example, the atomic bomb, right? You know, the atomic bomb ushered in this long piece, right? We've lived in this long piece. Well, what, what long piece? Well, I mean, listen, if you do, you, do you agree with Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature? Fuck no. No, I know you don't. So there you go. <laughs> long piece. Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature, like most yeah. of his work that's not about linguistics, right. in, in my opinion, is totally intellectually unbalanced and uh, questionable. Right. Uh, you know, he, he defines violence right. uh, as very, in a very, very limited way right. uh, when it comes to modern uh, examples of it. He doesn't talk about dictatorships. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk about... You know, uh, all the people who were disappeared in Chile and Argentina. And he doesn't talk about El Salvador, the death squads. None of that counts. He's mm-hmm. just World War II, mm-hmm. you know, where white people like us were fighting and dying. That's, that's, he doesn't, the rape of Manchuria, the rape of Nanking, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't enter into his calculations. Mm-hmm. What? 
I mean, there's right. millions of people there. Right. Uh, Cambodia, Rwanda. No, that, oh, that's not war. That's, you know, that's genocidal, uh, whatever. Right. I, I mean, I may be wrong on these individual examples, but oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, that is nice. That's my phone. Um, that, should you. I vamp? <laughs> vamp, yeah. That's, that's mine. Should I rant out of my ass? <laughs> rant out of your ass. That's my, so now everyone hears my ringtone is Hey 19. It's a pretty good ringtone. Steely Dan. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. You gotta love the Dan. Um, but, you know, I, I think, so let me ask you this, right? So Sorry for that interruption, folks. <laughs> I'm sure I'll forget to edit that out. No, but so. I think that's good. That's authenticity. That's right? authenticity. This is coming to you raw. <laughs> This is a, this is a handcrafted yeah podcast. exactly it's an artisanal, artisanal. artesian <laughs> handcrafted I mean you know how everything's fucking handcrafted it's amazing this is a handcrafted beer but like, see what are you but see about? but see but you should be excited about this this is really like the it's global bullshit. village the global no, village everything's going to be handcrafted handcrafted podcasts no nothing will know, be handcrafted. handcrafted it'll just be branded as handcrafted oh, okay. it's all fucking lies yeah 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 but don't you think that you know again like don't you think that social intelligence is figuring that out don't you think that you know no. you're not the only one who's having these thoughts that a lot of that shit is lies no i don't think we're figuring it out i think that what's happening is that we're just layering bullshit onto bullshit and each layer is like a it's just like a fresh coat of paint on a rusted fucking chassis so let's talk about the rusted chassis right the rusted chassis is getting back to our earlier conversation we don't know each other there's no reputational damage so you can yep. get away with bullshit you can sell crap yep that looks good you can sell poison to children yep and call it fruit loops and for and example as long as you make money on it then that's it's right fine but see the point is is that in the same way as you know within the small village of 150 we try and hold unaccountable on his actions and his behavior right we now have the ability to hold each other accountable on our bullshit so for example I've been holding Sam Harris accountable on his bullshit. But nobody's holding General Mills accountable for all the Some sugary... people are. Oh, no, they're Some not. people are. But the large part of what this re requires, right, is, is that what does it require to not get sold a lemon, right? Like a shitty car by a secondhand salesman who right. sells you a rusted chassis, paints it up, does the whole thing. Right. It requires intelligence, right? So I am easy to dupe at a secondhand car salesman. Right. Because I know shit about cars. So now we've got apps that all tell you whether this guy's trustworthy and you get there's definitely cool stuff happening but but, see, yeah, but, but my point but is there's that a we're focus. never going to catch up well we may never catch up i'm okay with that but the point is is that we at least can keep in lockstep and be closer i think we may i think we may have you know because my, my background is education. That's what I care about the most. Mm. And a lot of what this comes down to is, is that, you know, mental tools need to be shaped, right? So Descartes' error, the idea that thinking and feeling are always linked, mm. this may be obvious to Chris Ryan, but I'll tell you that to a lot of humanity, it is not obvious. It's because I have a really high IQ. But you are off the charts, Chris. I'm off the fucking you know, charts. And the problem is, is that, you know... I've you, seen the charts. And you're an early adopter, Right? So in many ways, you've been exposed to a lot of this science that most people have never been exposed to. They don't understand how to think these things through. So, for example, Isaiah Gooley, who is maybe your biggest fan, 
um, you know, wrote a whole thing about Chris Ryanism, where he's defined a philosophy for you. Who? So, well, exactly. So Isaiah is somebody in the mixed metal arts community, uh. and um, he's been writing. He started off writing about Chung Yu, which are like these little <laughs> Chinese uh, sayings, right? Uh-huh. But then it sort of like veered into basically just his, you know, loving of Chris Ryan and how awesome Chris Ryan is because you changed his life. I did. You changed his life. Well, that's good, I guess. Yeah. I changed it in a, in good a positive direction. way. Oh. So he was in Afghanistan right. and we started listening Isaiah. to a lot of. Uh, His name's Isaiah? Isaiah Gooley, yeah. And he started listening to a lot of Tangentially Speaking. Oh. And that, Sex at Dawn, a few other things changed his life, but you had a profound impact was he, on uh, him. in the military? Yeah, he was in the military. Did he desert? No, did he frag? His... He may have deserted, but I don't think that he deserted. Oh, he rice pudding. Deserted. He rice pudding. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you had a profound impact on his life, and he talks about how Chris Ryanism, right, which is this sort of understanding of our humanity uh-huh. and that it's okay to be human um, in the in all the variety and complexity that it is, is in many ways the progenitor of what we're doing with mixed mental arts. Uh-huh. And it's just because you had exposure to a lot of this science before a lot of people did and I think that's the point is is that you know most people have not had access to a lot of these ideas and the more we democratize and make people understand how humanity works the more people are going to be like oh that's a more authentic satisfying experience and that's a better product than a lot of the commercial bullshit that's being sold and people will choose that they will adopt that innovation but we have to package it and make it accessible yeah and we have to make it clear that a lot of the shit that is sold as science is not Shinola. But it is Shinola, right? Because we don't know shit from Shinola. Oh, Shinola is the good stuff. Shinola is the good oh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I thought I was getting a deal when I bought the shit. shit. That's no, good no, shit. no, that's good shit. That's yeah. good shit. That's not Shinola. Yeah, well, that's true. It's yeah. an ambiguous thing. Um, uh, okay, two, two things I wanted to, that came up, yeah. and I'm just throwing them out. We don't have to talk about them oh. right now. It's just so I don't have to take notes. Yeah. Philip K. Dick, you know his, his uh, quote where he says, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't disappear. Yeah. I don't know the quote, but I would agree with that. Okay, so let's get back to that. And then the other thing I wanted to, just a place marker... Um, uh, Spandrel's acceptation. You familiar with that concept? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting concept. It's a great Stephen concept. Stephen Gould. Yeah, yep. of course you would know that. Um, well, I specifically, I actually got it recently from listening to, um, there was a Columbus meetup for Mixed Mental Arts, and they did a podcast. And there's a guy, um, uh, Adam Hansen, who works in innovation. That's what he studies is innovation. Mm. And the degree to which so much of innovation is acceptation. Yeah. Um, That's the essay right there. That's why I was reminded of it. Oh, really? On top of that stack is the original essay. Uh, Gould and uh, Leventon, I think, or Lewington. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. There it is. Proceedings of the the Royal Royal Society of London. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, When was this published? Uh, 79. Yep. The Evolution of Acceptation by Natural Selection. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so let's tell people what it is, basically. If there's a good quote, I'll read it here. Well, the example that... uh, Here it is. Oh, go for it. One must not confuse the fact that a structure is used in some way with the primary evolutionary reason for its existence and confirmation. And what he talks about is... um, 
Oh, and here, here, this gets to your thing. Adaptation, a good fit of organisms to their environment, can occur at three hierarchical levels with different causes. This mm -hmm. is back in 79, and, and yep. people are finally coming around, some people are coming around to understanding that this is true. So he talks about um, a church in mm -hmm. San Marco mm -hmm. in, in uh, Italy that he's visiting, and he looked at the, the arches in the church, and in the, of course, you know, the walls are straight, the ceiling is straight, so there's a 90-degree angle where the walls meet the ceiling, but the arches, being arches, leave this sort of triangular curved section between the corners and the arch, and there are these beautiful um, structures that mm -hmm. were uh, sculpted into that, and, and it looks like they're there to hold up the ceiling, it looks like they have a, a, a functional purpose for being there but in fact it's just a space that needed to be filled in that's right and so it, it led to this brilliant line of thinking where in biological adaptation things exist in our bodies and we make the mistake people always do this with me they're like well then what's the evolutionary reason for this and why you know why is that there and we assume that every facet of our bodies and our minds has some evolutionary purpose. Well, of course, men are jealous because in the yeah. caveman days they had to develop, and we make up these stories right. that um, seem to explain things, mm -hmm. but in fact, they may not be things like the chin. Right. You know, well, a strong chin is important for blah, blah, blah. A chin is just a place where two parts of the jawbone join. Right. And have there's a chin is not a thing. Right. Uh, you know, in a biological sense, it's a thing in a conceptual sense. Right. And those two things don't, those two ways of thinking don't map 100%. So anyway, that's my well, explanation of acceptation. Well, and, you know, I mean, the example that Adam Hansen gave, which is a good one, is, is that, you know, feathers may have originally evolved for, for heat, heat loss, regulation, yeah. but then ultimately they came to be used for flying. Right, because there's no, so one of the big mysteries of evolution is how did something like feathers and wings, mm -hmm. also wings, um, how did they develop? Because until they developed to a certain point, it couldn't have been gradual. Mm -hmm. Until they developed to a certain point, you can't fly. Right. And you have to have very light bones. The body mm -hmm. has to be. So it's not like it, it can't possibly have been a gradual development because right. you could never have reached the point where it became useful. Right. Uh, so that's a big mystery in evolution. So that's where this this way of thinking really helps a lot because you say, well, the wings probably develop when you open, when you hold them up, then the body can uh, mm -hmm. respirate and heat loss is much better. So it became, uh, you know, a night, day heat loss thing. I also just love this. This is like a Frenchman. See, yeah, get this, it all this out. Is, uh, <laughs> for you Patreon sponsors, you get to see me make these wing motions. And if you're right now only listening to the podcast and not seeing it, don't you want to lay down some cash uh, so you can see for it? For as little as a dollar a month, you can see... <laughs> Chris Ryanism in action. <laughs> um, I can't believe that Chris Ryanism is. Yeah, a no, thing. it's branded as a, as a as a whole worldview. A Weltanschauung. A Weltanschauung. There's always a great Gemütlich. German word for every Gemütlich. Gemütlich. Yeah, yeah that's a good. Or Gesellig in Dutch. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, what was the other thing we were talking about? So we were talking about exaptation and, and then the... Oh, Philip K. Dick. Oh, okay. Philip K. Dick, yeah. So, so I've been thinking about that because I, when I first read that, I wrote it down. I thought that was a really interesting thing. Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, mm -hmm. 
doesn't disappear. Or to phrase it in terms of the 90s, reality bites. And you feel it. That's right. And it leaves a mark. It leaves a mark. So, okay, but I, the more I think about that, the less aligned I am with it. Ooh. Because there is, because it ignores, and in fact, aggressively dismisses, I would say, an element of reality which is reality, but which only exists when you believe in it. Okay. Love. Well, that's emotional reality. It's reality. Okay, let's not talk about emotional reality. That I think we can. I could argue that, but I'll make it even easier on myself, okay. which is part of Chris Ryanism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a central tenet. Are a you core, guys getting this it's down? It's a core tenet of Chris, Chris Ryanism. Make it as easy on yourself as you possibly can. Or, you know, I could I'd get all arrogant about it. You know, Lao Tzu argued that uh, if you choose the battlefield, yeah. you've already won the battle. Um, By the way, I mean, Isaiah Guli will love that, you know. Is he into Lao Tzu? Well, he's a, he's a Chinese linguist. Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. Um, I butcher Chinese regularly. So, yeah. Uh... Placebo. Okay. It exists mm-hmm. when you believe in it. Mm-hmm. When you don't believe in it, it doesn't exist. Right. So it is reality. There are thousands of experiments proving that it is. It's even experiments that aren't about placebo prove it is because they always compensate for placebo effect. Um, but, you know, when you take away the belief, that element of reality disappears. So let me give you another example. So fuck. Fuck Philip K. Dick. Oh, I don't think so. I think Philip K. Dick is right. Oh, Philip K. Dick's going to fuck me. Yeah, I think Philip K. Dick is going to stick I, his I Philip K. Dick on inside my, of you. My Philip K. Um, Dick. <laughs> is it that long? <laughs> my my yeah. mic cord. Um, so let me, let me, let's go back. Let's tie this all back, right? No, I just have big feet. You do? Which is the same no, thing as I saying don't. I have a big Philip K. Dick. Um, but so let's tie it all back yeah. to Ignaz Semmelweis. So they did they believe that Ignaz Semmelweis was right about this hand-washing thing? No, they didn't. Did that mean that that stopped being true? Germs still existed. Well, well but wait, you're, you're taking Philip K. Dick's thing and, and arguing the inverse. Am I? I'm not saying that it's not true as far as it goes. I'm saying it's not a complete expression because it rejects that part of reality that is predicated upon belief. I think, right, so we're part of reality. Human beings exist in reality, Uh right? And, you know, there is, you know, there are our beliefs, right? And our beliefs are, you know, this is what they call naive realism or Maya, right? Our beliefs create a sort of perception of reality. And then there is some sort of feedback between what we believe and, you know, whatever is happening physically in our body, right? So... I believe that, you know, for example, somebody loves me, right? That creates an emotional experience. There is a chemical experience. Right. That creates physical manifestations. Exactly. There are consequences of that. Right. But that all exists. We all exist within reality, this larger thing. And, you know, the point is, is that those rules of reality, whatever they are, which we keep on forming better and better stories about uh, over time, uh, is... Are they better and better? In some senses, they're better. I think so, yeah. But see, you, you reflexively 
return to this progressivist worldview yeah. that things are getting better and better overall. Mm-hmm. And I keep like calling you back on it because I don't think, for example, that our way of thinking about mountains and rivers is better than I the agree. Maori way. I, I think agree. It's far inferior. I think it's far to inferior. To the point where we're destroying ourselves. That's right. So, but so the the, the when I say better, right? So there's the Western view, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of which is the consequence of this atomistic or logical view, which is is that you know history is a line and it's a straight line and all of that, right? I don't believe that. Right? But you do think the line is moving upwards. Well, and then there's the Chinese view, which is that history is cyclical. Right. I think that the, 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 the model is some combination of like the two. It's a spiral. It's a spiral. But you do believe that things are getting but better. I believe that the long arc of history tends towards moral justice. Then the last 10,000 years have been an aberration. I think that that's the big question that I have for you, right? Is, is that, you know, why was there this shift towards agriculture? Like they didn't, you know, I mean, the, the, the point is, is that clearly they lost a lot. They didn't know the trade that they were mis- making and they didn't know what they were losing. Yeah, well, at, but, at the risk of giving away one of the most interesting chapters of this book that will someday come out, if I don't die. If I do die, will you like take it over? It's right there. Listen, it's right there. I, I, See those I, not only will I take it over, but I guarantee you that Isaiah Gooley would be honored. Isaiah. Isaiah you guys can co-publish we it. We will co-publish it and we will get you Chris know. Ryanism out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> the last will and testament of someone, Chris Ryanism. Please, if I keel over, someone just, it's like, you we, know, we will, we will, just carry me, drag me across oh, the will. finish line. We will. Um, but anyway, because that, that's that's a, a pivotal question, and I get asked it all the time, and it's difficult to answer. Uh, but there is an answer. It's just complicated. The way it's normally phrased is, if civilization, if agriculture is so bad, why did we choose it? Why mm-hmm. did our ancestors choose it? You talked about earlier, you used the phrase, the invention of agriculture, and I was mm-hmm. going to call you on it, and then I thought, fuck it. Because no Let individual... I, I understand. I understand. It wasn't invented. So... All right, there's a story that I think encapsulates this. There's, it's a true story. There were some tourists in Sonoma Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got up early. They were going to take a, a sunrise balloon ride over the vineyards. And uh, they were in the parking lot. They were setting up the hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, the, the balloon was tied down. They were filling it up with air. And it was sort of half, half uh, inflated. And a breeze kicked up just as they were untying it and sort of positioning it. And it started pulling the balloon away. It it was getting away from the the balloon Mm -hmm. wranglers. And one of the tourists jumped in and grabbed the the basket to help them hold on to it. And it started, it got away and all the pros let go because if you work with balloons, you never let both feet leave the ground. Right. This guy was just trying to help out. He didn't know. He held on. And he started rising up above Mm-mm. the parking lot. And until he was up three or 400 feet, and he finally let go and died, right? And so you might say, as the sheriff did, like, what was he thinking? Mm, he wasn't. Well, he was, but what he was thinking was, at each, when he was... 10 feet off the ground, mm-hmm. he was thinking the same thing he was thinking when he was 200 feet off the ground, which was... Shit, it's too late now. I should have let go before. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what agriculture is. Agriculture is a ratcheting system where when 
and, and the thing that that shows it it wasn't an invention it didn't spread it it at least uh, historians differ on this but most people say it arose at least seven times independently. Mm -hmm. Others, I've seen it argued as many as 12 times. So different parts of the world, it arose at different times, but the uh, climactic context seems to have always been the same, which was that there was an unusually rich uh, period of rainfall. Mm -hmm. So human population, just like rabbits or birds or anything else responds to fluctuations in the plentitude of the environment. Now, we're special because we eat so many different kinds of things and mm -hmm. we're very adaptive. And so when there's no rabbits, we can eat squirrels. And when there are no squirrels, we can eat mollusks and we can eat right. all sorts of things. But, um, you know, our populations did uh, were in alignment with the environment, just like every other animal. So you get a period of particularly rich rains. The environment becomes very rich. Then the rains stop. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Then suddenly there's starvation. Right. So normally people die. Right. Kids die. Right. Right. Uh, but in these cases, someone figured out, like, wait a minute. We dig a trench from the stream to these nut trees... And the nut trees will stay alive. Mm -hmm. I think the first steps, and, and there's no evidence, there's no proof, there's no way to argue this one way or the other. But I think the first step was bringing water to an area that had been mm -hmm. full of food. Um, and then once they did that, it was like, oh, holy shit, we can, we can manipulate this. We can control yeah. this. But once you do that, then you've you're a hero. You save lives. People mm -hmm. aren't dying. Those kids aren't dying who otherwise would be dying. Wonderful. Oh, now we need more people. Have more kids because we, now we mm -hmm. have more food. Then we have more kids. Then we have more food. Then we have, mm -hmm. you know, and then you get hierarchy. Then you get the whole fucking disaster. Or yep. when, what did the, what's the line in Zorba the Greek? The whole catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I've got a wife, kids, yeah, the whole yeah, catastrophe. catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, So I think, so that's what happened. Nobody ever chose agriculture. There no. was a crisis. This seemed like the smartest way out of it. Somebody figured it out. It made sense. And when you think about so much of technological development is like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we invent our way out of a fucking mess. That's right. Only to find that now we're in an even deeper mess. But see, I think that's the, that's the nature of progress. See, the, so... Progress? I think I if think, the mess is getting deeper, that ain't progress. Well, I think the point. So, for example, the you know the the famous thing about uh, that the car solved pollution, right? Because there were all these horse-drawn buggies, they were shitting all over the street. Shit right. was piled up in the streets, and at a low level, right? When you have you know a few motor cars, yes, it's a massive reduction in pollution. Right. But then at scale, it becomes a problem. Right. And so now you have a new problem, and now you have to innovate and solve around that. And so we've already seen that. You know, first we swapped out the form of locomotion, right, mm -hmm. from a horse to an engine, <laughs> right. Then oh, leaded petrol became problematic. Now we have to swap that out, right. And now oh, there's this whole problem with you know CO2, global right. warming, all that. So at, at each stage, you're being forced to respond to the problem that we've created. We now solved, if you think about the evolution of computers and the internet, we have, you know, there are all these computers. Oh my God, this is so cool. Mm. Let's link them all up. Oh my God, this is amazing. And initially, there's this amazing excitement in Wild West. I mean, what we think we forget is, is that in 2011, the Arab Spring happens, and everybody's like, Mark Zuckerberg is going to win the Nobel Peace Prize because 
these revolutions are happening. It's so exciting. Freedom it's is going to take off world. a whole new world. Yeah. And now we're in 2016, and now we feel very differently. By the way, Mr. Hayek, you, we're in 2017. Or 2017, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, <laughs> it's only late in May. See, you'll you'll is, get to it around no, August. No, but see, but that's the whole point, why we, why we need an IQ revolution, so that I can raise mine up from the swamp that it currently resides in. Steamy. Steamy. Steamy swamp that is my brain um but the um you know i think the you know so now there's a new problem right 2017 2016 a a lot of new problems and we will have to work around them and keep solving them and but, but can you even call it solving a problem when you in the process create a I new mean, one? Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking out ever larger loans to pay off the bills we've already got and and always with a higher bill then. Yeah, it's a in other words, so that's what is, why I'm questioning this notion of progress and the moral arc and all this shit. It's like we're not getting better. We're just working harder and harder to not totally collapse it's a it's a pyramid scheme yeah it is a pyramid scheme and, and that's why have you ever read the a, a brief history of progress by robert Ronald uh, no Wright? i don't think so dude it is so good and, yeah and you know it's sort of the the you know i'm talking about how civilization arose independently in different places he looks at all those different civilizations and shows yeah. how they all collapse the same way they yeah. all collapsed. Every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed. Right. We think this one's going to be the one that doesn't? I well, mean, look I'm, at it. It's collapsing right now. It's imploding. Well, I think and that's... And it's global this time. Well, but crucially, the point is, is that the old way of doing things is imploding, right? So there was an old way of living that no longer makes sense, right? But the question is, what emerges from that, right? Is this some sort of catastrophic collapse, right? Like a you know, fall of the Roman Empire type collapse? Or is it that, yeah, or is it the collapse of an old order and then a transition into a new order? And that's why I think our job is midwifing. We have the opportunity to midwife in a, you know, because this really this global civilization has been evolving since 1492. We better fucking wash our hands, though. Yeah, we better. handling dead shit. That's right. Yeah. But I think the opportunity, I did, not that's what Chris Ryanism is about. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I, I think I that's. I hope I was on camera when that happened. Oh, you were, don't was worry. I, I, I don't think know. you must have been. The charisma meter seems to have just settled on you. It's no, like, it's, it was on you the whole time. Really? See, if you watch this video, I, I've been looking down every once in a while. And, and occasionally it, was, it accidentally dude, ends up on me. It loves you. No, it loves you, Chris. Um, but if, I, te- I, if technology is so smart, how come it doesn't know I'm bad mouthing it? Um, well, I think I'm that's, talking to you, Mevo camera. But maybe, maybe it just has low self-esteem. <laughs> that, <that's laughs> maybe it's like, a, maybe it's like a stripper, you know? <laughs> it has real daddy issues. We need to invent technology with low self-esteem. That's it. Like, <laughs> so it needs constant validation. Ow, you're a bad boy. You never amount to anything. <laughs> Yeah, how can yeah. I, you know, win your love by being more useful to you? Yeah, that's what we need. We yeah. need like technology that's the like the golden retriever of computers. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't want a fucking Rottweiler. No. No. A golden retriever. Um but I, I think the um I think that the you know what what how does how do you, how do you like the question is how do we scale Chris Ryan? 
So, you know, there's, there's one Chris Ryan, yeah, there's Chris Ryanism, and how do we create a whole planet of people who are as reflective and self-aware as Chris Ryan? I think I gotta start donating sperm. Is it, it, but is it genetic or is it cultural? Oh. Do you need to propagate your way of thinking or do you need to propagate your genes? God, I'd like to think it's the second. It'd be so much more it's fun. more fun if it was the genes? <laughs> yeah. Although not if it's like sperm donations. There's no, no, that's fun not fun. That. That's not... <laughs> Can you imagine if you had to donate that much sperm? It would literally be your job. You would just be in the bathroom. Or, or having, like have one of those like automatic milking machines. Uh, oh, that would be torture. That would be horrible. It? Like talk about too much of a good thing. Yeah, but not a good thing. <laughs> that would not be. That would that would be. Uh, that's not sex at dawn. <laughs> that is not sex at dawn. I got you. That is sex at twilight. I mean, it's, it sort of sounds like it would be a good metaphor, though. You know, like well, he got his dick stuck in a milking machine. <laughs> it's like you get your tits stung at a ringer or something. <laughs> I always wish I, I had a good memory for those sorts of expressions. Oh, you mean like the you folksy know? ones? Yeah, like, yeah. he's busier than one arm paper. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, like yeah. those kind of things. I, I can never remember them. But, but you don't need to because you have the internet. Yeah, but you can't, like, in the middle of a conversation, yeah. just be like, excuse me, I'm just going to look yeah, up yeah, a witty yeah, yeah. line. I can't quite remember. Well, you know, maybe that's the thing. I mean, the other thing, too, though, is, is that you have all of your fans. And I know at least one of them, Isaiah Gooley, right? But Wait, he's getting a lot of shout-outs. Well, you know, I think he'll appreciate that. Um, but the, uh, the, the point is... is hey, that Isaiah, write to me. I'll send you a free Civilized to Death t-shirt. <laughs> I'll get my mom on the job. He will. Yeah, he will. do it, buddy. I'll put, I'll put you two together on an email. Do it. Do it. Um, but, you know, Isaiah or any of these other people, what they can also do is that I bet you that your, your community would go and they would collect together for you all the best, uh, you know, sort of are witty. Are aphorisms? Yeah, aphorisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one that I love um, from uh, Katie O'Brien, who I co-wrote The Straight A Conspiracy with. Her dad is from rural Maine. And so one of the ones he go he always says is yeah oh yeah that's up around Sawyer's barn, and you're like what up around Sawyer's barn and that is something that is very far away, right? So it actually has nothing to do with Sawyer's barn at all. Wow. It has to do with just being like far away. Uh, yeah. Well, we've been talking for two hours. Yep. And um, it's kind of stuffy in here. It is. Not fetid, but I'm feeling. I'm feeling. Like Are you I, in the swamp? I, I need to get up and move around and drain so, the swamp. Well, so I'm gonna thank you. I'm gonna thank you, and you're Chris Ryan. Thank me because we're co-releasing. This. That's right, we are co-releasing this. So uh, yeah, have we have we have we been balanced in terms of who was directing the conversation here? I, I think it just sort of happened spontaneously. I think it you. did. Evolutionary. Yeah, yeah, it evolved. The it evolved. Art. But I still, I we we need to come back to this though. I think you and I will probably talk about this for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah. I'm very skeptical of progress. As I say in the book, when you're going in the wrong direction, progress is the last thing you need. But I think the, the key thing is, is that we need you to be skeptical of progress. So the, you know, that's the wisdom of crowds. You need lots of different voices and lots of different opinions. And as you hash back and forth, everybody is forced to refine their thinking. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, I, I shouldn't make a list of things that encourage me. In fact, that's sort of what the last section of this book is about. It's, it's mm-hmm. things that I look at and say, you know, that's kind of a good thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, like um, guaranteed minimum income. Yeah. That's a hunter-gatherer approach to life. I think and like, that's... Everybody and, has enough. And I think that's the thing. For me, the reason why I'm hopeful is because I think that a hunter-gatherer approach to life is what the global village will become. 
That's what we need. And another key element of a hunter-gatherer approach to life is um, population control. Yep. In hunter-gatherer times, it was uh, infanticide, which is brutal. Um, But, you know, in our time, we've got the technological ability to uh, keep it in our pants. Keep well, yeah, or get, use contraception. Use contraception. Get a vasectomy. I mean, yep. if, you know, let's let's uh, get some advancement in that area. Uh, and we could reduce the population on this planet to fifty million people without hurting anyone. No, yep. no genocide. No massive wars. No nope. no disease. Just once you've got guaranteed basic income, you incentivize people mm-hmm. and say, "Look, if you don't have kids, you get a bonus." That's right. And that, but also people remove the need to have kids to take care of you in old age, and you've incentivized not having kids. So the whole thing, but but our mindset is all about growth, 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 growth. Well, but crucially, I think that's the thing is is that if you look at what are the choices that people are making, a lot of people are having fewer and fewer kids anyway. Yeah. So you know, I think the point is is that Chris Ryanism. Which is the it's catching on? I think it is catching on, dude. It's the wave of the future. I really do think it is. Too bad I won't be here to see it. Oh, but I think you will be with with oh. missionaries like me and Isaiah Gooley. Oh, I'm going to live to be a thousand. Well, I don't know whether you're going to live to be a thousand, but we're going to propagate your. We're going to have a Yanomamo Jihad on the internet <laughs> where we propagate Chris Ryanism. Uh, that is what the Yanomamo Jihad great. is. So I'll be like the Che Guevara. Exactly. College kids will have posters of, of Chris. Yeah. Ryan, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. So, um, a whole lot of good it's going to do me. Oh, it will do. I'm, Are you I'll kidding me? No, think about think about how much prestige you'll have as the Che Guevara of the Yanomamo Jihad. But I'll be dead, dude. No, you'll have access to so many sexual opportunities. No one loves you'll have you when so dead. much prestige. Sexual opportunities as a dead guy. You're not going to be dead though. This is getting gross. You're not going to be I'll dead. I'll certainly be old. I'm already how? old. Yeah, but how fast do you think things change on the internet? On the internet? On the internet. I'm talking about reality. And if I'm they change about, on the internet, they change in reality. I don't, I don't want sexual opportunity on the internet. I've already got it. <laughs> <laughs> YouPorn.com. Listen, I, I got all the sexual opportunity see, I can handle. Well, but here's the thing. Okay, so what by we're going to do is... By the way, people who Patreon yeah. uh, supporters can see <laughs> over your shoulder my AVN award, my porn award. Uh, for best non-sex performance. <laughs> wow! But are you saying, Chris, that non-Patreon supporters? Wash your hands. After <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, are you saying that non-Patreon supporters won't be able to no, see that? They won't because wow. they, don't, they don't have access to the video. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But anyway, I'm going to tell you, Chris, that I think we can change this remarkably quickly. Mm-hmm. I think with dedicated missionaries like me and Isaiah Gooley, mm-hmm. that by the time you take your van... Are you getting a dollar for every time you I say Isaiah Gooley? <laughs> yeah, it's actually... Of, I, I'm, I'm on his... bet Yeah, there's some sort of Patreon there. <laughs> um, but I, we're going to make it so that there is so much talk about Chris Ryanism on the uh, internet and uh, so much talk about the Yanomamo Jihad yeah. that uh, by the time you take your van out on the road, there are going to be groupies lining the streets to see Che Guevara pass Throwing through. Throwing pedals they, and in, in panties front of the van. And, and whatever so else you want. you've seen the van. You were in the van. I've been in the van. It's yeah. amazing. This camera's going on the dashboard. Oh, it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. All right, right, Hunter Mots. You still here? I guess you enjoyed that conversation. Well, so did I. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast and are financially 
able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, If you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, ChrisRyanPhD.com, TangentiallySpeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that Shore Design T-shirt, shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. 
body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from a confrontation wondering what we ought to say <laughs> when everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but we're gonna die one It's a big deal If you want to be free Say what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground